Welcome to RV Odyssey. While I am not in my RV, but I'm actually visiting my parents for a while, and I have Rucka Rucka Ali, the internet YouTube sensation, and we're going to talk about probably a lot of things today. And um, you know, I'm, I'm not going to go into a big introduction on who Rucka is. I have a link. You can go to ruckasworld.com or go to YouTube, and um, it's Rucka Rucka's uh, Rucka Rucka Ali. Is the YouTube channel right? Because there's a f- couple of them. Which one's your main one? Uh, there's quite a few, but if you just look me up on YouTube, you'll find what you're looking for. Yeah, so he does parody videos. They're hilarious, and we'll talk about we'll talk about them. We'll talk about some of them at some point. But um, what I really wanted to talk about is literature and and how you think of literature. And this is a good way to get started for me, anyway. And you know, you're a comedian. You've been doing this for like 10, 12 years now, I believe. And, you know, you, you have rap, you have music, you write lyrics, and they're funny and edgy and challenging. And that's what's really interesting. And, and I think that's, you know, I, I really like your comedy. I think it gets the essence of comedy. And before I kind of go into my view, you know, I, I love Greek tragedies. I fell in love with literature because at nine I was trying to figure out this thing called the Iliad. I was good at nothing in life but in school, but people at nine years old, people said I could read. Okay. And I was like, okay, I guess that's good. I heard this book, the Iliad was supposed to be the greatest piece of literature ever. So I was like, okay, well, if I'm a good reader, I should be able to understand this. I started reading it at nine. I was crying the whole way through. So I don't know what the fuck was going on. I was like, something's wrong with me. So my whole life has been trying to understand that and literature in a, in a big way. So um, the uh, so Greek I'm very interested in especially and they had of course you know the smiling and the the sad face of Greek and uh, tragedy and comedy so I was just curious like as a comedian you're in this tradition of it you know you're you're a working comedian you're making your living at that you're impacting lives and I'm just curious what do you think comedy is? Um, comedy is funny. Okay. So this is this is a, like mm-hmm. an interesting thing about um, artists, and I wonder if you think about this, and maybe we should avoid this question, because do you think that as an artist, if you delved into the essence of your art, right, you tried to understand it, it would basically ruin it for you, and you wouldn't be able to do it anymore? No, I think that's you know that's that's kind of the false belief people have like if you try to explain art it loses its meaning i mean i think the opposite is probably true but um there is such a thing as like over intellectualizing Mm. to the point where you're just like you're like trying to have this out of body experience literally like you're floating away (laughs) um i i have yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had many moments of like reflecting on like, why is this funny? And like, it, it ultimately is just kind of like an attitude. It's like kind of this um, sort of independent approach to the world where like, where I, I'm not threatened by scrutiny and I'm not threatened by what anyone else thinks of this. Like, like this is just funny to me, and it's it's just it's everything right. It's everything that that should be. Um, like, you know, I've, I've heard it said, you know, comedy is is nihilistic in nature because it knocks things down. And that could be true. I also see it as well. Yeah. So it, it knocks things down, but it, it knocks like it knocks down things that don't matter. Typically, I mean, there's different ways people do it. Some people, they knock down things that do matter. They they knock down the idea of integrity. They knock down the idea of. Well, that's of being why it's so important. Mm-hmm. To have your yeah. values solidified. 
Mm-hmm. Right? Aristophanes, the famous example, Aristophanes in the clouds made fun of Socrates, mm-hmm. a very valuable human, and not too long afterwards he was executed. Right? And so comedy definitely has a power by directing the society to laugh and negate at something. But there's a tradition of so that's the power that it has. It, it can cut, right? It can destroy, it can bring down something. Uh, yeah, like there's a famous thing in V for Vendetta where the guy, mm-hmm. you know, attacks the the big monarch figure, even though he knows he's going to be killed eventually, because he says this has to be done. We have to make laugh at this mm-hmm. person. And he's cutting down the very essence of his demagoguery. Right. Yeah. And but the question is, how do you direct that tool? Right. How do you. So some comedians will attack Socrates and then will lose a Socrates. Right. And then some people will attack you know, how silly sexism, SJW, racism is, and, and how we're still offended by these things when they're really not that offensive. Like, we've moved to a better place. Yeah. Uh, also, well, also comedy, it could be, um, like, conflating things on purpose. So if I were to, uh, I know we're both obviously fans of Ayn Rand. If I were to, like, make a statement about her and her philosophy that make it sound like a religion... And that her students are all like like conflating her with the Pope. Mm-hmm. The the joke is that that's not the case. But obviously yes. some 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 people might hear that and they think I'm 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 knocking her they down don't when it's comedy, right? Because yeah. um, you're laughing at that comparison. Mm-hmm. That's and what I, you're laughing at, right? Yeah, I'm laughing at the comparison. I'm laughing at the fact that people misunderstand and they misread and they think that's what it. On both sides, people who like Rand and who dislike her, mm-hmm. off sometimes. Uh, can be guilty of equating her with 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 a dogmatic uh, preacher. So there's that. There's kind of what we, in in improvisation we call finding the game. Um, so let's say you and I are acting out a scene on stage where, like, wh- where the game is every time, um, every time I use a, a verb, you. I'm trying. Every time I use a verb, you jump. For instance. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean that's that's it's a weird game, but like you find the game and then you exaggerate it each time. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm having game. a yeah. So all right, let's say the the game is um, okay. Here's a, here's a game. Okay, let's say the game is that that animals are the same as people. So it starts with the, with you saying like, hey, don't talk to my dog that way. My dog is is you know he's perfectly rational. You better speak to him with respect. <laughs> and I say and I say okay, I'm sorry, and I apologize to your dog. And then in the, in the next scene, you know, someone cuts to the next scene, and this time someone has a, a little hamster in their cage that they're walking down the street, and they're demanding that people speak to their hamster with respect. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. and by the final scene, it's, it's literally like uh, an amoeba, a, a, you know, a, a unicell, unicellular organism that, <laughs> that we need to speak to. There's like, hey, like, like, hey, like, yeah, don't, you know, don't, don't you uh, disrespect this little piece of skin I just yeah. scraped off. It's, it's alive and it's, and it's, it has an, a feelings. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so there's, you know, finding the game. So yes, it, it, it necessarily is making fun of, of something real and it can't, I mean, it's knocking something down. And I think, like you said, if you have your values in order, if you have an opinion, then you can't make fun of the good. You can't make fun of it. I don't mean you like you mustn't. I mean, it's really impossible. You can't make fun of something you look up to. You can't make fun of something you agree with in any substan- substantial way. So, um, yeah, back to you, Kirk. 
<laughs> well, I mean, it's, for, for me, I find this interesting. Like I said, literature is my passion. And, I, you know, comedy is a form of literature. Writing lyrics is an art. Um, and, you, you know, you're recreating reality. And, and it's, you know, I, I read a lot of poetry on my podcast, a lot of poetry. And I've done it a, a long time. I'm doing a Nathaniel Hawthorne series. And in between that, you know, he wasn't a, 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 a comedy writer, but he would write satire occasionally. He would make fun of certain people in a certain way. And I'm interested in the, the you know, like tragedy is what I'm particularly passionate about. But comedy is an interesting antipode, and it's always been the antipode, and it's, you know, and it has a certain power of its own. And I think, I mean, so for instance, what do you think of this idea? The Greeks believed that tragedy was far superior than comedy. There was a role for comedy, but it w- didn't do what tragedy could do for your soul. And mm. so they thought of it as, as superior in that sense. Um, so what do getting, I think of that? I'm getting deep hey. on, on comedy. Well, no. Well, that, that we, 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 get, we go deep, go on, deep. This, on this show. Um, we penetrate. The, <laughs> the, the question of which is more meaningful is a, is a hard one. I don't know if one is more meaningful. Obviously, um, tragedy makes... You know, it, it's an it's a an acknowledgement of values. You know, like like death acknowledges that life is finite and precious. Heartbreak is an acknowledgement, you know, that you're alive and that you have values. So it is meaningful. On the other hand, without laughter, you know, what's the point? So I think I I, I don't I think tr- trying to pick which one is um is kind of better might be a little bit of uh of a misguided attempt mm-hmm. at. At, at a hierarchy. I don't know if there is kind of a better one. It might depend on your mood. Yeah. And, and I reserve the right to change my mind about that someday because, yeah. um, because, but I, I think something, something we do in society, Kirk, is we, 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 we overplay the importance of, 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 of tragedy and loss and, um, I mean, uh, what am I getting at with this? We dismiss the significance of just everyday products around us, you know, mm-hmm. that, that make life so much more convenient. We're like, oh, yeah, sure, you know, a dishwasher. Yeah, that's – that's and obviously it, it saves you a laundry machine, right? It, it, sa- it makes your – it enhances your lifetimes infinite to infinity. To, to, you know, it just saves you so much time. Uh, food, you know, being bought at the grocery store, it, 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 it saves you the task of having to dedicate your mare – existence to sustaining yourself mm-hmm. but we just kind of brush it off like yeah yeah sure that's a nice perk but that's not the, that's not you know what's important in life i mean but but as as you and i probably would 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 say it's it it is important someone really had to put their mind to work to to bring these things about and um and it's it's plenty important and it it's it's a very big part of life so similarly i think we tend to brush off Laughter and comedy is kind of like, yeah, sure, it's great, but that's not, you know, that's not meaningful. Well, well, why, well, why not? Well, I th- I'm saying, I'm arguing it is meaningful. The, mm-hmm. the Greeks had a, a little bit of a different view, but we'll put that aside because I think what you're saying is interesting. I mean, one, one of the ways that um, a comedian in the recent last couple of, last couple of years, Louis C.K., pointed out exactly what you were saying right now is his whole joke about, you know, you're a Greek, you're a Greek myth, like, like, a, like people who complain about the chairs on airplanes, right? You know that joke, right? I mean, yeah. so a lot of these co- comedians do point out really insightful things occasionally. And, you know, he makes fun of you, like he, in the case of Louis C.K. And, 
You know, he's talking about how you couldn't even conceive of how they put air in their fucking tires and you're, you know, complaining about capitalism and all that stuff. And even though he's like kind of socialist and but the joke is fucking hilarious, right? Like and it's very insightful and not all comedians do that all the time, but some of them do it some of the time and the better ones do it some of the time. And, mm-hmm. you know, he's yeah. pointing out the, the same kind of thing you're talking about right now and the power of the comedy in that sense is you know i think again i'm taking an outsider's perspective so you're an insider so i think like i said it's interesting because you may not think about it as much you just do it right like that's kind Mm -hmm. of always been the 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 artist role is sometimes they don't philosophize about their own thing but it's easier for me as like a critic to come outside and say hey this is what you're doing like that's not what i'm doing go fuck yourself right right so So, no uh, i think uh i think something maybe all comedy does but certainly a lot of stand-up comedy does is like kind of point out those things you never thought about kind of like pulling the curtain up just a bit so like giving you a little bit of context so yeah when you're sitting on an airplane and you're impatient and you're uncomfortable lewis is saying hold on you're sitting down in the sky (laughs) like this is crazy but and of course i could challenge lewis further and say well louis why are you so intellectually lazy when it comes to pulling the curtain up further and why don't you you know like why why don't you know why don't why don't you take your um your conclusions to their logical extreme so but yeah comedy you know comedy does that if relationship jokes you know like oh you never notice you do those things you know george carlin who i think is pretty nihilistic a lot of the time he he would say like oh why do we use this word for this and that word for that and what's up with that um he um he he observed like in making fun of the environmentalists of of his of the 90s or when you know whenever he was telling doing this routine he he said you know, environmentalists, they act like we need to get back to nature and, you know, we need to protect nature. Is a plastic bag not a part of nature? Like a plastic bag is a part of nature. Like that was his observation. And of course it, it is. Um, and so he was giving a little bit of context. Of course, he's missing a lot of context as well, such as, you know, what is human nature? And then what is what does human nature require? So um, plastic enhances human life. And then also we Nobody wants to live in a wasteland, so where to put this plastic is a, is a question to ask. And I mean, it just it just ultimately reduces down to existence exists, and that was never somewhere Carlin seemed to want to go. But yeah, giving a little bit of context is is funny to people. It's like whoa, ho, I never thought of it that way. Um, and oftentimes the layman m- might look at these comedians like, oh my God, everything he says is true. They, they think like, like everything George Carlin says is true. Like he's so brilliant. He just sees past everything. But the truth is a person who says that just hasn't really put their mind to work very hard or they haven't found the uh, guidance to, 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 to seek out truth. So when they hear, when they see just a glimmer of, of context, they're just like blown away by that. Um, I think I was at the post office the other day and as I'm, as I'm standing in line with, you know, all these different walks of life to people of different age, <laughs> the post you know, office, the human, the post, you know, you know, yeah, human, you, you know, you're, 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 you're typical post office. Yeah. It's post like we've got Walmart. I mean, mm-hmm. you're getting yeah. certain slices of life. True. True. <laughs> so, um, we've got people of different ages, different races and, um, <laughs> Uh, immigration status, perhaps, but uh, just different, um, all these different walks of life. And, but we're all like basically American. We all speak English, presumably. Like we're all 
more or less on the same page in terms of how to live. And it got me thinking about how, um, like, the reason I find racial stereotypes or cultural stereotypes so funny is that they, like, emphasize the blank slate. Like, they emphasize the fact that a person can choose or can someone else can, can, can educate him a certain way from the time he's born so that um, we're not we're not radically different. The people with with like the, with a Chinese mindset are not a different species than a person living in the United oh, States or or, yeah. or living in a different century, whatever it is. It's like so kind of overstating the uh, like kind of exaggerating stereotypes is funny, probably for the reason that it it. Uh, embellishes the fact that you these that these stereotype that the, these these certain actions are unnecessary they're they're not innate and and I'm also exaggerating the um the determinism of it like the fact that the person of this background must behave this way of course they don't need to behave that way that's kind of, it's funny to act like that's like that's their genetic predisposition when when you see like different you know the same person can in a different environment or a different with a different philosophy behaves completely different and thinks completely different. Yeah. And so when you're looking at a stereotype, an Asian or a, a black stereotype, you're, you're saying that you're, you're kind of isolating this one attribute that we've, that we've, that society has often said about them, even though there's a lot, we all know, especially in 2018, you know, we all know in America that's not really accurate anymore to the degree that it ever was that we made fun of and but yet it's still in our minds to some degree right and so it sounds like you're saying you're you're isolating that one fact you're kind of emphasizing it rather than avoiding it right stuff that we may and and then you're you're kind of focusing on it and making fun of that one area like well i I think chicken or something like that yeah i think so i think i mean so racial stereotypes are funny and i think the reason the real the ultimate reason they're funny is because they don't need to be this way now a lot of people do behave like their stereotype uh a lot of people they do behave that way a lot of people don't that's why it's funny it's funny to see like a like 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 an americanized asian person and like to um, <laughs> so to, to see an Americanized, like a fully Americanized, like everyday uh, American person who is of Asian descent mm-hmm. to equate them with this fresh off the boat, um, you know, Chinese person who like immigrate is I- immigrated in the year 1871. Like yeah. these are two different, very different people, but yeah. kind of conflating the two is kind of what's funny is because of the blank slate, because not, neither one of these people was determined um, but as far as, you know, That's your, your, your point that in 2018 in America, we, we, we see, we know better. Unfortunately, most people don't. So we've got the, the, you know, the, the, the nihilistic left who sees, on one hand, they say uh, race is a, is a social construct, but they also say that this social construct has, has determined the way a member of a race or a, of a group sees the world because they've been, kind of conditioned by the patriarchy yeah, that's the intersectionality by the, thing right so they've yeah. been conditioned so now they must see it that way from that point of view of that group which is a social construct but it has however determined how they see the world so they cannot understand or empathize a, a person of a of a completely different group so there's the, that the left saying that and then 
what has been largely the answer to that coming from the anti-social justice crowd is biological determinism. They've said, oh, no, 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 race is not a social construct. Race is real. It's 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 genetic and and it does determine, you know, and then they try to um, they try to point at history and say, look, this race of people behave this way. That race of people behave that way. And and it, it becomes like this argument about nature versus nurture when the reality is both nature and nurture are are minimally impactful compared to ideas, compared to philosophy. So um, the philosophy of a person and therefore of a culture makes all the difference in the world. And the the genetics of any particular person only matters when it comes to. Um, medicine. It only matters when it comes to, you know, uh, donating organs to that person or knowing how susceptible they are to certain diseases. The content of their ideas is, in my opinion, um, as far as I, as far as I've concluded, uh, a blank slate from the time they're born. Yeah. So, so you said a lot there. Um, yeah, yeah. Where where to start? I think. So w- one thing I think is interesting is. What you're saying about nature and nurture, you know, I, um, I, I don't, I, I would make some fine tune adjust, adjustments on that. So, you know, I agree that the, you're, you're born tabula rasa in terms of the actual ideas, but I do see evidence that we're definitely born with certain type of characteristics that are pre- predominant in us, um, that are very basic. And Thomas Hobbes had a really interesting way of looking at the natural being uh, abilities of our minds. He said, um, if I'm remembering this correctly, you know, he said something like there are two basic attributes, like two, like if you look at the person naturally, just not anything you can learn. They either have the ability to stay on track really well, right? So you know that person who can stay on a point very effectively versus the person who's all over the place. Right. And I do think there's something I think some of that can be trained. It's, this is focus. Focus is something you can actually train. But I think there's limitations. And there's some people that are just able to be super hyper focused. That's just a little bit more natural. Now, I think you get a kind of supernova when you get someone who they're trained, like their parents educated them properly. They get focused, you know, as that like you can train focus. And I think a good education helps you learn that skill. I think it's a skill to to stay on a point to say let's let's focus on what is nurture we're going to talk about nurturing for months until we really master right that's focus and and more than that it's you know if you think about focus from Ayn Rand's perspective like she's talking about like how you integrate facts in a specific sequence right you this is why you need logic and reason you're kind of looking at okay so we're talking about nurturing I'm going to have a thousand examples. I'm going to, you know, apply it in this area and this area and integrate it. And I'm going to focus on that for a long time. And I think that's part of what focus is. And then the the other thing that Hobbes said is um, acuity. So quickness. So for instance, I think Ben Shapiro is very quick and he has a very, um, he has a high acuity in terms of how, and, and he is pretty focused too. Like he is able to stay on track. That's one of the reasons why he can be, you know, such a good talk show host in the way that he does is he, he says his thing. He's do, he does it really quippy, really fast. And he moves on to the next thing. He does his, he does his thing. So mm-hmm. my point is that I think from the, the nature standpoint, there are certain things. I think there are limitations. I mean, you could, you could be born retarded. And so, you mm-hmm. know, that there are limitations. And so you could be born a genius and Ayn Rand, 
you know, said that there are people that are going to be born in between there. I'm not a genius. I don't know if you're a genius. Maybe you are. Um, yeah. Okay. He's nodding yes for the podcast. <laughs> Rucka Rucka the genius. Okay. I don't know. Um, and, <laughs> you know, but there are certain geniuses of the age um, that, that kind of can, you know, like a Newton that can integrate something brand new and, and, you know, stay focused for their whole life. So there is a, there is an element of nature there that's, that's, part yeah, yeah. Of it, that allows yeah, you to listen. reach those kinds of levels, right? I agree. I mean, um, the ability to focus, I, it, well, everyone has the ability to focus. It's certainly just as, uh, a, a newborn requires food and shelter, a, a baby and a, and a toddler and a young child, they require to be taught how to focus as best they can and how to learn and to think critically. Um, and to a degree, any any kid in a civilized society does learn to a degree how to focus in that he's taught to use certain tools and and how to solve certain problems. Um, it's certainly something that not everyone is taught properly. In fact, probably most of us or all of us have not yeah, been taught how to focus correctly. Yeah. Right. Yeah, now, yeah. I um, I've always been good at focusing, I think. Not great at focusing at school, not great at listening when someone's talking, but but <laughs> – but but having – yeah, very, very active mind. There was a yeah. point when I was about three years old that was like my first like coherent memory when I was just – I remember like looking down at the carpet and thinking about the fact that I was thinking, kind of like thinking about the fact that I exist. Like I'm here. Whoa. I don't remember where this started, but here I am. And you came online. Exactly. <laughs> I, I logged on to the internetscape. Um, <laughs> of Rucka's consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, so that's a yeah, I agree that there are different uh, some of us for for one reason or another choose to focus no matter how we're raised and others seem to never learn how to focus till the day they die. That is focus very hard. Um, I don't know where that comes from. It could very unfocus. This is James Taggart. Yes. mm -hmm. That's called evasion. Right. you're, You're consciously not focusing you're you're, mm-hmm. you're specifically saying like you see a new fact and you you rationalize it away as oh that's white people being white people right that's a way to that's that's what leonard peikoff would call um disintegration is you're you're consciously on purpose mm-hmm. not saying i'm like it takes effort to integrate something it, it takes mental effort you know peikoff calls it mental sweat and I love that, mm-hmm. like that, that analogy or metaphor. It's, it's mental sweat to do it. So it's just like going to the gym. You gotta do it. You gotta do the work. Like if a, if a white person comes up with a, a new idea or a new fact and he, he has a new discovery about global warming and you say, well, he's a white guy, right? And that's how mm-hmm. a lot of people on the left might, might say it or, or, or he's paid by the oil companies. And that's a, a, a actual, so, so not, anything he says is not even real. Facts aren't going to be real. That is like a, a training their own minds to evade. That's that's evasion in practice. So I, I agree with you that there is like you're absolutely right. Like everybody has this focusing ability. Some mm-hmm. can we can be trained to be focused more or worse. We can choose mm-hmm. to be more or less focused. And the, the training is largely from ideas. It, it's from philosophy. So the the way the way, you know, the ideas that you're taught either implicitly or explicitly can play a very, very, very big part in whether or not you choose to focus in your life. And then a handful of people, for one reason or another, just choose to focus early in life and just never stop. 
and those might be the geniuses that you're well so what uh, i'm arguing and what thomas Mm -hmm. hobbes was arguing is that Mm -hmm. there are it's just like you know the the physical like if you think of mind and body as one Mm -hmm. there's no separation so just like in the physical realm you know i i work out a lot but i know there's a certain limit when I'm squatting and I'm benching and I'm deadlifting. There's a limit. Like I'm improving a little bit all the time, but there's got to be a limit, right? I'm not going to be doing 5,000 pounds, right? Unless I take some kind of special drug that they haven't invented yet. And and then that that's an interesting question, I think, is like then there's – but there still would be a limit at some point. You know, I wouldn't be you know, juggling worlds like a Superman. Like there's got to be some limit. So what I'm saying is in focus – my, mm-hmm. What I think is true in the nature part. So we're, I'm still focusing on this nature and then we can talk about the nurture and then talk about free will if you're interested. But uh, mm-hmm. the nature part is there are some proclivities that we're born with that some people can focus more easily. Like it's mm. it's more natural to them. And and then when you have the super, like the combination of they get the right training, they you know they focus more. That's even better. Now, I think every human being who's not, you know, completely retarded, and I mean that literally, obviously. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, they're, yeah. Just, they're completely mentally deficient. Every mm-hmm. normal person, which is like 99.9% of everybody, they all can improve their focusing abilities. Everybody. Mm-hmm. If you're a human, you have free will, you can improve your focusing abilities. Maybe you won't be able to improve it as much as a world-class thinker, but you can improve it. So, of course. So what mm-hmm. I'm saying is like there is a natural element to focusing or, or to our minds and to what we're able to do. Look, that that nature. that question about um, where does that initial focus come from um, is a is a tough one. I don't know. It could be genetic. It could be environment or like it could be just simply a choice where where you can't go any any back farther than it. So you can't say what made you choose to choose that. Well, you're just still just asking what made you choose to focus um, it's like, I don't, I don't know where that initial choice to focus comes from, but some people do it. Some people don't. It's possible that if a child is abused, he just never focused, like never wants to focus fully after that. Reality sort of, is too horrible. Yeah. Um, so that, that, that might've been me if I had been abused before that first memory, for, for instance, if I had been abused earlier than that, it's, it's quite possible. I just never would have quite tuned in, um, when I did. So, it's it's a it's a good question like initially is there a genetic component to who is better at focusing and or or not you very well could be correct i think you probably are that some people are just much better at thinking um in an abstract big way and integrating more i mean these are the maybe the rocket scientists of the world and the and the calculus professors of the world whereas some people, the extent of their natural ability kind of peaks at manual labor. But the the question of what this person chooses to focus on and what they do with their genetic um, gifts, with their genetic uh, sort of um, given, like what they have, what they mm-hmm. what they were what they were given by nature, your and, and your their gift. gift. Mm-hmm. And also what they were taught to do with their training. Suppose they were taught to focus, but they were not. Um, they were they were taught to focus on religious studies, as many people are. That's why some of the most integrated people in history have been religious scholars. Well, this um, is another thing I wanted to bring up with you eventually: yeah. is the, the idea of intelligence. Because mm-hmm. I've heard you on 
other shows talk about smart people or you're not smart mm-hmm. if you have these ideas, which I don't actually agree with you on that. I don't I think, know if I said that exactly, okay, so don't don't quote me don't quote me saying that exactly. Okay, I, I like to say, say I like to say these are not smart people when I'm insinuating that a person or people are not they're not they're only willing to challenge themselves so far. So like they're they're very integrated. I mean Ben Shapiro is a great example of this. Super active thinker, right? Constantly uh, making arguments, constantly building upon what he knows, but it's all within a certain context, within a framework that he's that he's um, that he's decided to stay within. And when he's talking to the other IDW geniuses, they've all agreed not to deviate. They've all agreed not to deviate beyond the certain mainstream uh, acceptable frameworks of what is academically allowed. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my point about about the ideas is sorry that was an alarm reminding me to speak to you because we were we were, <laughs> we were speaking an hour earlier than we had planned yeah yeah um the my point is that the ideas are kind of what makes such a big difference so like you can have a person taught to focus very well living 150 years ago in india and you can have a person taught to focus very well living in 1950s United States. And these are very different uh, people. Their philosophies are very different, um, I guess, is maybe the point I'm making. Is that ideas or, I mean, for instance, you know, a, a Nazi uh, intellectual living in Germany. That's a good obviously yeah. very active intellectual. Yeah. I mean, the, these were not dumb by any stretch. Like they're they're. Um, they're obviously only willing to stay within a certain philosophical uh, scape scope. I'm with you, but well, they're but the, they're active. Yeah, and so the I, the ideas are what make make all the difference. So in in hypothetically, Goebbels could have been an objectivist living in you know living in the United States if he had made some very different choices and been exposed to very different ideas and chose to be honest in his endeavors, which obviously is a very difficult game to play. Like the what if. Uh, game, but but that you know, ideas are what make the difference. I think. Well, I mean, we're not going to disagree that ideas make a difference, but what I think I'm trying to get at, or what I am trying to get at here, is is um, it's harder than we imagine. We all know that it's hard, and we say that it's difficult, but it's difficult because one, it's not a, the difference between just dumb people and smart people, right? So it's not that's, and you said that yourself just now. I think mm-hmm. to a large degree, these are not stupid people. So the question is, why are these smart people choosing these wrong-headed conclusions? Why are they not answering certain deep philosophical questions? Why are they stopping within a particular system, right? And <clears throat> so I think part, I mean, so what, what I think is going on a lot, and one is the way I think about of intelligence, smartness, like what intelligence really is at its core, its essence Intelligence is simply the ability to, you know, hold and and process. I think of it like a processor, process multiple things, abstractions, concretes, you know, in your mind. It's basically your mind's processing power. And some people have a higher intelligence, and that that's one of the things that I think is probably one of the more fixed attributes of humanity. We can, I think, focus. We have more control over intelligence. Is like height in a certain sense. Like you, you, you have what you got for the most part. You might be able to upgrade a little bit, 
but not much. You put like one little card in your processor when you like read Ayn Rand or something, and that's about it. But um, you know, and obviously there's others that can do that. But I, I think you can actually do that if you like learn a new, a whole new subject. Like if I, I don't know much about science, but I bet I'd get smarter in general. Like my intelligence would actually go up a little bit if mm-hmm. I started really learning science or learn mm-hmm. a new language. I think that's, but anyway, that's a different discussion, but intel that's what intelligence I think is, is that a processing power. So the question is why are the, the, the processing power of these people is they're integrating things and they're, they're good often at analogies. They're good at metaphor similes. They're making connections. They're often doing broad abstractions. They're a lot of times creating whole new castles in the sky and they're just creating this whole new theories and they're, they're, you know, moving into new theories. I mean, we have, you know, Kant, Hegel, uh, Marx, and we, we have like this whole tradition. These are not stupid people. That, I mean, if you read Marx, and I've read a lot of Marx, and you know, I'm, I'm minored in philosophy, so of course I read a lot, of, a lot of Karl Marx, and he's not stupid. I mean, he's a smart, intelligent individual. So the question is, like, why are these smart people going wrong? Why mm-hmm. are they going off in the wrong direction? And that's that's by the way how I look at it. Is an intelligence kind of like. And I learned this from Alex Epstein, actually, but it's kind of like a train, right? And, and you're, you know, these smart people are integrating. They're going in a direction. They're just in the wrong fucking direction. And so they mm-hmm. keep going farther and farther. And then the question is like, well, shit, you got to go all the way back that way. And they're already down that way. And they're not, you know, it's, it's really challenging. So, Well, the ideas are powerful. I mean, you, it's, you cannot overstate it, right? That means it, it cannot be overstated. It, it's so big. Um, the importance of ideas is huge psychologically. It's terrifying to question something that you've held as implicit or explicit your whole life. And most of people's beliefs are implicit. So um, they're like, I mean, morale, the morality of altruism is a big one. The average person you bring up selfishness is the, is a virtue. And then now let's 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 question everything else that that we believe with kind of without without upholding altruism as the moral ideal as the moral code and very few people are willing to go there because it's just so far outside of their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, a lot, I mean, you mentioned Marx and Hegel. I mean, a lot of just religious people are very academic. They're very active thinkers. They're like, they, they, they're abstract. They're, I mean, often rationalistic in terms of what they, their ideas are detached from reality, but they are, I mean, they're also, they can also be talented engineers because their minds are so capable and active, but it's within a context. They, they're unintegrated in a sense, in a, they're misintegrated, I guess you would call them. Um, so, I mean, actually questioning, um, beliefs, questioning ideas, especially when it comes to ethics is really what separates the men from the boys, in my opinion. It's, <laughs> it really is everything. So most people, it, and even people who, you know, may discover like the objectivist ethics and agree with it, even in their case, they might still have a lot of guilt that they're carrying around because they haven't really, really kind of untangled the wiring of altruism. They might feel guilt or they might be evading, right? They might still be not really putting honesty in, in, in the driver's seat because that that requires some again leaving the comfort zone in the realm of of ideas and really really questioning one's implicitly held but I, I, beliefs. And I'm trying to challenge is like mm-hmm. I, I agree with a lot of what you're saying and I'm not disagreeing with that. What I'm trying to get at is there's a more activeness involved. So it's not merely a matter of 
you know, um, I mean, you could say laziness, but it's like when you like honesty is not something you just kind of do like, in a, in a, or it's not something that you just, um, you're either honest or you're dishonest. Like honesty is a certain way of integrating facts. It's a method of it. And it's not, it's saying, well, here's a fact that doesn't quite fit with my theory of this human. Let's say, let's say you're, you're talking about an employee or a fellow person you're working with. And it's like, well, they're always mean to me. Well, except this one time. So what, what's going on? Oh, maybe there's something going on in their life and they're depressed and, you know, but I think they're just an asshole, right? And I don't want to be honest about it. And, and that's, that's honesty. And, and honesty is like, I'm going to look at all the facts. Give me the facts, the whole, all the facts, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, no matter where it takes me. But you have to be willing to go down the route to take you there. And the, the issue, so this is where I'm taking issue, I think, is like, I agree that you need to be honest. What I don't quite agree with is that it's just a switch that people are just they're either honest or dishonest. It's like, it's more like hitting the treadmill. And it's more like, you know, you got to you got you got to either you do it and then you could do it better and better and better. But it's fucking hard to be honest. Like it's like to be honest with yourself is for me anyways, really hard. Like to look at myself and like, OK, I'm not where I want to be. Why am I not? You know, am I just being lazy in certain areas? Am I not as productive as I could be because I'm pretty productive? Oh, but, I, you know, and there's so many ways that you can easily rationalize in a negative way your own self. Right. Or uh, and. Uh, especially yourself it's easiest to rationalize yourself so i mean i think like i i i lo- like you're super passionate about ideas and I, I had actually i don't know if you've read cyrano de bergerac no you read that it's ayn rand's favorite play and mm-hmm. you, you know i i really recommend it i mean if you're going to take literary advice take it from ayn rand and this mm-hmm. this play is amazing and it's a, it's like edmund rostand he's the last romantic um and it's you know a, he called it a heroic comedy in five acts and I don't know if you know the Steve Martin movie. I'm sure you do. Like, um, where he's, he's got the big nose. He's the fire. He plays a fireman. Uh, damn it. What's it called? I'm forgetting the name of it. But anyway, he did, he did a, a movie in like the eighties and he plays this fireman with this big nose. He's this big, courageous, not, this is a guy who never compromises and that it causes him a lot of problems in life, but it's about the non-compromising you know, hero essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, I, I, I think, I think of you when, when you say that, cause you, you, you know, you don't like to compromise. You like to go after it. You don't like it when people do it this way. And I think that's interesting. And, um, you know, the, the side that I want to explore, I think with you is an interesting is like people, are, you know, it's, it's difficult for people to do things. It's not a matter of just do it right. It's not a Nike slogan you know, there are a lot of psychological reasons that are in the way that are problems. And if I bring it back to comedy, what I really think comedy and what your comedy can do and, you know, what I I like about your comedy and and who knows where you're going to take it. I mean, you're still fucking young. Like you have a huge career ahead of you. It's like what I love about comedy and what I love about what you're doing is you're pointing out certain inanities, like certain sillinesses and the stereotypes, I think is what I'm saying is like, here's a stereotype. Here's something that you all hold. Let's that may be a little silly and let's kind of, you know, um, make poke fun at it. And I'm seeing skepticism. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think that's kind of, uh, that's something that like the, the feminist comedians and all the, uh, all the dorks at the comedy club <laughs> like to do. They're like, Oh, I'm being offensive to show you all how racist you are. No, it's, well, I'm, not, I'm, the, I'm saying the opposite, but okay. yeah, but, Oh, I, I'm not making any statement about if most people are prejudiced or not, or that people need to wake up. I'm, 
it's like I find this funny. Like it's funny to me because like through through introspection, I know just how many choices are open to a person. So to um, kind of put, yeah, so you know, a broader a, a, point is that we, we have free will. Here are stereotypes of where people are choosing not like it doesn't seem like they have free will, but it's they actually do have the ability. Is that right? Sort of. I mean, it's these or the, these stereotypes. They're in the culture. They've been in the in comedy before my time, and they're in the media. Like they're in, like they're depicted in a number of ways. So it's kind of a joke. It's like, oh, it's it's like um, it's like something. It's like, yeah, it's it's out there. It, these are memes. There's a word I like. It's a meme. Uh, these stereotypes are. So it's it's funny to kind of. It's kind of celebrate them. It's not a statement about if they're true or not. I mean, it's, I, I mean, to me, it just kind of goes without saying that, like, like, just as I have made so many, like, choices in my life, so can everyone else. I don't have this, like, philosopher king mentality that so many alleged non racists have, which is that they look at themselves as individuals, but they put everyone else in this deterministic box and then they think they're, they're the philosopher king who's going to do what's best for that group. To me, it just it goes without saying that every individual person on earth can make can make virtually any decision about what they believe and what they're going to do. Um, most people default on that ability, and I think to a degree, most of us or all of us are victims of the philosophy of our culture that we're in and the way we were raised and and kind of the tools we were given and the. Um, guidelines we were given, but nonetheless, there is the choice to focus. Um, I think you were saying something a, a bit ago. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it had to do with like, well, we don't know everything about kind of what it, what a person is capable of, or we don't know everything about. There's natural uh, limits. There are natural limits, and I think what came to mind is is that's almost. I mean, that's kind of like saying you can't really be certain of anything because we're not omniscient. Um, holding omniscience as the standard. You were talking about, well, I'm never going to be able to lift the planet. So, you, so, you know, there are limits. Yeah, but there is there is the context of what kind of what you can't, your potential, and then it, working to achieve it, working towards a certain goal. And every person can and ought to uh, be working towards his maximum potential. And I would say a step further and say, Anyone who's not working towards his maximum potential is really just uh, running on the fumes of people that did and do reach for their potential. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, we were having a discussion about nature versus nurture mm -hmm. in the context of um, I was trying to understand your view of your own comedy and, you know, the stereotype idea and how it plays out in your in your comedy, in your in your parody and that you're. You find funny these stereotypes, and because there's a, the ability to have multiple choices, here's one that happens to be humorous. There's some truth in it because some people default on it, and they are like that. They are like this, you know, um, stuck up white boy. Let's put that stereotype, like with his stick up his ass. There are some, you know, those type of white boys, right? And there are some you know, Asians that are really bad drivers, right? And there's some, like, there are stereotypes that are like that. And then there's, like, 
Uh, I think Bill Burr has a joke about this. Like, there's no middle ground between Asians. It's a funny joke. It's like, they're either really bad drivers or they're fucking Tokyo drifting around and like dancing and break dancing in the club. I think that's, you know, and that's something similar to what I think you're talking about is there's two different stereotypes there. And that's showing that there's actually a, an option. You don't have to be that, you know, Asian stereotype. And that's where the humor is. It's like, let's make fun of this one. You know, if you're that one, then reflect on it. And that's what I was trying to get out with, like, starting this whole thing off with comedy and tragedy is part of. I was making a point about the, the difficulty of making of being honest, of, of actively integrating as a very, very like I cannot stress. I think it's like the hardest thing in the world uh, to do. And I respect people who do it to whatever degree they do it. You know, the more you do it, I have more respect for you. Just like if you go to the gym every day. I have more respect for you than if you don't. Um, mm-hmm. If you work hard every day and you're productive, I have more respect than if you don't. Right? Even if I don't necessarily agree with everything you're producing, but what I think comedy personally, I think does is like an outsider is I think it allows people to reflect on those, those things like that, that are foolish or silly or inane. And it allows them to think about it as like, well, maybe that is kind of silly. Like, why am I stuck up asshole all the time? Like, I didn't see myself from no, that external perspective, right? I don't need to be that way. That That's one thing. I think of the main theme of comedy as the castigation of fools. And so mm-hmm. the main role of living a human life that I think Socrates said, and I really like, he said, like, one of the main things of education is the curb of folly and the... the um, you know, and a vice, something like that. And it's, you're trying to constantly, this is not like a one-time thing. This is a daily thing. Like Benjamin Franklin had his daily journal for his whole life. Like you're all, you cannot stop. Like it's not. And I think that you have to be careful about having this, like projecting an idea that you can stop. Like once you get it, you get it. It's like, no, it's, it's just like health. You have to do it forever. Right. Mm -hmm. And what comedy I love about it, and we could talk about tragedy too, because I, like I said, I, I think I personally love tragedy more for personal reasons. But what I love about comedy is that it allows you to laugh at something, and then you're like, "Oh shit, I'm laughing at myself!" Like, "Oh man!" Like, I, I, I have this picture of um, what's that movie? The Idiocracy, mm-hmm. it was Idiocracy or something. And um, you know, I don't know how to say this. This is going to sound really mean about my parents, but <laughs> like they you know i think there's a scene where like everyone's eating tv dinners and laughing at this really stupid thing and i was like my parents are like eating tv dinners like watching in front i was like yikes <laughs> like you know it's it's that kind of self-reflection that makes that points out something and not to say they're bad people i mean my dad worked his whole life or whatever we can but it's 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 focusing on this little thing and making fun mm-hmm. of it right yeah. and then you can kind of guide your life i mean life i see life as like you have to constantly guide it. The winds are changing. People are punching in the face. Like you got a hole in the boat. Shit's happening. You got to like paddle all of a sudden because there's no wind. Like you got you to gotta do that every morning, every day for the rest of your life, which is why you need the two pillars, the antipodes, comedy and tragedy to help you guide that. That's a concrete, you know, Ayn Rand is a huge proponent of art. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read her romantic manifesto. Yeah. So which which uh, which pole is like the fountainhead, a comedy or a tragedy or, or neither? Well, she would call that drama. She call, she said she was yeah. in the realm of drama. I I mean, mm-hmm. she is in a um, a new kind of. I mean, she she I think would put it as um, probably more comedy, but I 
if you look at it in a traditional sense, but I think it's more maybe a tragic comedy. Like there's a mixture where there's something there's something new that has come up in the last couple hundred years, mm-hmm. where it's you know because what again if you want to talk about what tra- what I think tragedy is and what comedy is, you know I think the comedy is like I said the castigation of fools is a big part of what it is is you're pointing out something foolish and hopefully you're going to reflect if that's somewhat like you. Tragedy has traditionally been and and it's. I think evolved, but it's still essentially this is something like the, the, um, the sad death of Kings in a certain way. So in modern times, we get a totally different type of literature. Um, this is something that Rand railed against where there's not really heroes anymore. It's more like the everyman, the, the death of a salesman type thing where it's just a normal guy living his life and shit happens to him and it's really bad and he commits suicide. Right. And mm-hmm. it's like, okay, well, there's some great craft to it. A lot of times, but it's not mm-hmm. the grand, grand tragedies where you have an Oedipus who's like this king godlike creature, you know, person, and he's falling. And and the question is what Aristotle called, um, he basically said, missing the mark. I don't remember the term like hemortea or something like that. You're like he said the whole point is like he's missing the mark, and the question for the audience is why did he miss the mark? Where did he make a mistake, and how, what can we learn from that in a certain sense? Mm-hmm. And that is, I think, what traditional tragedy and um, comedy is. But that's like at the birth of it. It's obviously evolved, been more concretized. Ayn Rand has had her hand in, in it with what she has um, solidified in what art is, especially as, an, as a literature form. Mm-hmm. But anyway, so I, I, I think it's those, those yeah. But go ahead, sorry. Well, so she, she, I think, said in an interview, and I think was probably said in the Romantic Manifesto, um, like, that art is not propaganda. Art is meant to evoke an emotion. And I, I, so that's, I mean, for, for a similar reason, I think I, I, I keep resisting this, these statements that like, oh, stereotype humor makes you think and realize that stereotypes are wrong or that racism is bad. It very well may t- do that's that. It all, maybe, yeah. It, it, it's something that may happen. It also may have an opposite effect depending on what a person is inclined to believe, like where they choose to go with it or, or earlier influences and et cetera, et cetera. In today's, in today's intellectual landscape, racism and, and determinism is the norm. I mean, it's, you get laughed at for talking about free will. You get, you get laughed out of the university unless you're bring, coming from a religious standpoint that has sort of a traditional, um, precedent, like to say, yeah, there's free will and it comes from God. It comes from, it's a supernatural idea. That's, that's fairly common. That's, you know, uh, not, you know, but, but to say there, there's a secular case for free will is some, I mean, people make fun of that. So, um, for that reason, you know, joking about racial stereotypes, people could think, um, making fun of somebody's immutable characteristics when I, when I'm not, I mean, clearly, I, at least not from my point of view, I'm, I'm making fun of, you know, memes. Again, I make like a certain image that's kind of out there in the culture. I'm sort of making fun of the whole situation. Like, um, like, I mean, just look, look at like my Trump material. I'm make, I'm kind of making fun of him, but also making fun of like the culture around him, like the people who hate him, the people who love him. It's all just kind of one big, um, kind of, you know, stylization of, of, of reality in a way. Yeah. Um, so um so there's that element and then there there's kind of like the the joke when it comes to stereotypes is kind of that nobody is determined to behave any particular way every person can and should think 
and act according to their values in pursuit of their values. So that is in there. Um, but I, I, you know, as, as we're talking about this, I'm, I'm thinking about the fact I've never had, uh, a song about like mentally retarded people. Like I've never, I've never thought to go there, not because I'm like the comedy police and you may not joke about this, but it's just not funny to me. I'm not like, a, again, not, not offended. I guess I sort of am, but like, I'm not trying to be like the comedy police. It's just yeah. for, for me, like, why do that? Like, why, why make fun of somebody who was born unable to, to, to think? It's just, it's just such, such an uncomfortable topic. Um, so. Yeah. So that's interesting. I mean, you're making fun yeah. of the, the, the things people have choices about. Yeah. They don't have I, a choice I get about being retarded. If you're, you know, right. like if you're retarded or if you're born without arms and legs, you don't really have a choice about that. Yeah, um, there was um, I, I did a song after Kim Jong Il died, and at the end of the song, he's um, it was called "My Korea's Over." At the end of it, he. <laughs> I never saw that one. That's at, a funny play on. I love your puns. Your puns are great. Oh, thanks. <laughs> so at the end, he's like he's saying goodbye, Sarah Palin. I'll never forget that night. And then it cuts yeah. to her, her like holding a baby that looks like him. Yeah. And and of course, the picture originally that I found of her holding a baby is is of her holding her retarded son. And mm. could I have just used that picture as is? Of course, I could have. And in fact, the establishment sensibilities would have endorsed me doing that because the the mainstream media and most people had no qualms laughing at sarah palin's baby yeah. but with me i was like i was like no who wants to do that like there there's a joke you know there's a thing i i i don't i don't want to include i i superimposed like a baby wearing kim jong-il's glasses into her arms so the joke is yeah he had sex with sarah palin and now she has a baby that looks like kim jong-il but I, I just, I felt like sick at the thought of like using her, her actual baby with special needs as, as the butt of a joke. And again, it's not this Talmudic like, here's what's okay to joke about and here's what's not. It's like, it's not funny to me. Similarly, like I wouldn't, like I've never made, thought to make fun of like Ayn Rand or like anyone who I really, really look up to. It's not again that like, oh, she, she's a, she's this, uh, you know, she's a, a godlike creature who may not be mocked. It's, her name and her image, her 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 likeness, just brings to mind such such uh, admiration and reverence. Like it just, it would be, it would, it's like a, it's a bizarre thought to like spend any time and energy, like I don't know, like focusing on her immutable characteristics or on her accent or like anything that just um, is so beside the point of kind of what she what what she brings. Um, that makes you know, kind of what she brings to the table and like makes her unique. Do you, anyway, mm -hmm. do you often do jokes about um, people who've died already? Like, do you have a lot of comedy about, cause I, it seems like mm -hmm. you're mostly talking about people who are in the culture today. Yeah. And they're, I, you know, yeah, go ahead. I think the one time I did that was that I can remember. Well, of course, Kim Jong Il after he died, but I mean, he deserves much, much yeah, worse yeah. than that. And he that. just mm -hmm. died. I mean, like, do you make mm -hmm. fun of historical figures that often? Not Maybe really. Works or something, but I don't. Well, I, I had I did that history of philosophy yeah. song. But the, um, yeah, exactly. But you were you were yeah. I, I don't know. I don't. Um, that was one song. Yeah, I did a song when Steve Jobs died right away. Um, and but like this was a long time ago. Like I don't think I would do that right. today. It's like I just it just felt forced. 
Yeah. Um, I, I was in a much different place then, like in terms of what I was going through in my life. Um, so I was a much different person and that was kind of like a period of my, you know, career quote unquote, when I was, I was kind of trying to force the funny and trying to like work a certain formula like, Oh, this worked. Oh, people, they like jokes about tragedies. They like joke. They like making fun of something serious. So here someone just died and Apple, you know, has all these connotations because, you know, uh, whatever hipsters and vegans and paleo people are all into Apple. So let's make fun of the dead CEO. Um, and there was probably an element of respect in that song, despite everything. I was kind of celebrating his achievement, <laughs> probably behind the, mo the mockery. Um, but other than that, no, I mean, I, I don't I don't know if I've spent any time um, picking on historical figures, but m most of my content is not about people unless they're like current political yeah, um, well, that, that's what I was like saying. Pres like a certain pre like a current president or candidate, yeah. or um, or someone who's really, really in the like heavily in the news, like Bill Cosby was a couple of years ago. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So I mean, I th I think um, well, what I was saying is like it wouldn't make sense for you to make fun of Ayn Rand because she's been dead for thirty five. 35 years <laughs> so yes like it's not... but still even though she is on my mind she's a very relevant um figure in my in my story it, it just never like it never occurs to me that like hey i should you know i should mock her or like i don't okay so like there, there's this something people have attributed to me which is not really true is that oh with hit like nothing is sacred like that's like that's the idea with comedy like nothing is sacred everything is okay or nothing is okay to joke about well Everything is technically okay to joke about, but what I choose to focus on, what I choose to kind of joke about, has a particular context. Usually, it's it's something that I find funny. Um, so, like, it, it needs to be funny to me, or it's not worth joking about. I guess is so. It's, again, and people they, they they try to project on me all these like like oh he he's he hates everyone he or he's making fun of everyone equally. Well, it's not really true. Um, I make fun mostly of what, what I find to be funnier. So uh, the, the point I'm trying to make here is just that like, it's, it's either funny to me or it's not, it's not about the message. It's not about the, um, it's not about following the guidelines. And I, I, unfortunately comedy has become this like political scene. Like it's become a bunch of feminists and, uh, you know, uh, just a, a bunch of activists getting on stage and just talking about the issues and that's very very un uninteresting well <clears throat> so why don't we talk a little bit about objectivism i think there's there's something maybe um objectivist could use a little bit more comedy mm -hmm. um to point out some of their follies and vices um not because of anything innate to objectivism but because everyone needs that mm -hmm. um so i don't know if you've done or that's the argument I've been making about comedy and tragedy is that there's these two antipodes in art that can help guide you. And one is to castigate fools. Um, and another is to help show you an admirable figure in who, in whom to emulate. And that's, um, you know, that, that's what I think great drama, great tragedy does is it shows you here's a hero and, you know, I think that's really one of the more important things about drama and whether they die or live at the end is, you know, important, but it's it's not necessarily what art is. I mean, one thing I will say about what you were saying about the propaganda angle of, of art is 
I agree that it's not primarily about propaganda. I think it's primarily about concretizing abstractions and mm. the way that you stylize reality. And that's what an artist does. Is there, you know, like there's this line that all artists, all, all art is lie. And I fucking hate that. I think it's not at all. I don't think there's mm. ever been a lie in art. I mean, I don't think you understand what reality is because what an artist does is they're just taking particular elements in reality, right? Like I always use the example of um, even like the pearly gates and heaven and how we picture heaven. There's no, that's not a lie. Those are all, if you take each one of those elements, we have such thing as clouds. There's such thing as a gate. There's so all they're doing is just combining everything in a very slanted way to show you this is what the pearly gates would look like. Right. Um, you know the the lie may be the theme that there's a heaven like that's that could be the lie that the the message behind it but the art itself is not a lie the art itself is showing you reality mm-hmm. and um i really try to hammer that home with people it's like everything that you're getting in the actual like meat of art now what it adds up to could be a lie because they could be slanting it in the wrong direction but all the material is not a lie so but anyway you know the propaganda thing that you were talking about i think is Interesting, because I agree it's not the primary purpose of art. The primary purpose is to concretize, but it's definitely one of the critical or one element that often happens in art is that we get a form of, um, you know, we get we get a, a political message. We get, you know, for instance, that's not an irrelevant theme. I don't think to to have like your novel, you know, Starship Troopers have like a, a libertarian theme or something like that, um, or. or I don't know, some science fiction, utopian, dystopian novel, like Anthem can have like a, a, even though it's primarily about Anthem by Ayn Rand, for those who don't know, is, you know, primarily about the individual finding ego is what the theme is about. And it's an anthem to the ego. But a dominant part of that story, I mean, like 90, like the whole thing is about the society that has destroyed it. And by just, you know, destroyed ego and, and it's, um, you know, set in the future, but you think it's the past because technology is eliminated. But anyway, so there's a lot of, you know, Ayn Rand's themes, I think, had huge political implications. And, you know, that wasn't the primary purpose of them, but that was definitely, I don't see how you could escape that even in the Fountainhead. Uh, but, you know, an Anthem, like the idea is like, well, if you keep, because her whole thing was social, like the collective versus the individual, and she wanted to put up the individual, right? So I think she she often would put pit these two things against each other, and you could see the logical conclusion. Well, her philosophy was implied in all of her art, presumably, and so in the Fountainhead, it was about ethics. It was about here's how a hero behaves. Here, so a big element of that is. How does he deal with social pressure? Yeah, and or 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 material um, goods being dangled in front of him, saying, "Here, create a building that you know shouldn't be uh, erected for this much money." How does he respond to that? Mm-hmm. Um, also, how does he behave, um, you know, in Congress with with the woman that he loves? I mean, there's. Or how does he treat his friends? I mean, there. I think ethics is the theme of the Fountainhead, and then uh, all of philosophy is inherent in what? in Atlas, Atlas Shrugged. You have all branches of philosophy in Atlas Shrugged. So there are there are political implications, but I don't I don't think that's ever the maybe never the focus. Or yeah, I mean, I think Rand's whole one of her main things is that like 
politics is kind of the final stage of the game. Well, yes. I mean, the question is, so it's, it's one of the, the branches she would, I think, talk about it is like, it's a, yeah, it's, I guess the final conclusion, but one of the questions in the fountainhead is, um, like individualism, the way she put it is individualism, not in politics, but in man's soul, individualism mm-hmm. versus collectivism. And I, I've heard you make this argument like on Dave Rubin and, and things like that. And I think it's an important one for people to understand is what, what she means by ethics for one is a little bit different than what most people think about, which is why it's so hard to convince people. But the, the issue of politics, like what Dave Rubin and the IDW are always focused on with the political implications is you're really just tweaking around the edges if you don't understand that the essence of it is this fight between individualism and collectivism individually, like within your soul. And the Fountainhead is about that. Like the Fountainhead is Howard Rourke and Peter Keating. Howard Rourke is the individualist. Peter Keating is the collectivist altruist who doesn't. But but he's the traditional selfish person, I should say. So it's she actually. What why Fountain, Fountain has my favorite novel of hers actually on a personal level. I think uh, I think for a lot of people I know who are artists, it is for obvious reasons because he's an artist, the main character. But Peter Keating is um, a, supposed to be a, a colloquial, selfish person. Everything he does is supposed to be for him. But what Ayn Rand shows you throughout the novel is how that doesn't, how that's not true. He's actually never done anything for himself. He's never had a soul. That's mm-hmm. the whole problem with him. Yeah, and I that's think a, a tragedy, right? Yeah, a working title of the Fountainhead was Secondhand Lives. Yeah. And that shows so that that, you know, Keating, he's second handed. He his values come from prestige that comes from other people's appraisal of him um, and going all the way back to his early life decisions. He liked art. His mother wanted him to be more practical and be an architect. And he went with his mother's opinion. Yeah. Um, so that doesn't mean he should have um, hated his mother and called her names and kicked her out of his life. It just means he should have put his own passion and his own judgment above what she wanted yeah, for him. Yeah, tried to do that mm-hmm. tragically at like 40 years old, if you remember that one scene. It makes me cry every time. That scene's terrible. Um, I remember where like they, they're sitting around and he's getting old and fat. And one day she says, hey, do you think maybe you should marry, uh, you know, Cat, uh, seen, yeah, Catherine Halsey? Halsey, Halsey? And he, he goes, shut up. Uh, I remember that scene. Oh, wow. That's very sad. Uh, that's the one that kind of that's what made freaked me out. Yeah, like, yeah. holy shit. Like that. I mean, that could be anyone. That could be anyone yeah. who just screwed um, who screwed up their lives and always put their mother's opinion first, their parents' opinion first, or someone's opinion first. Um, I was thinking about when he gave, he yeah. came to Howard Rourke. Yeah, that painting and mm-hmm. said, is this good? And Howard looks at him and says, no, it's, it's too late. It's, it's too late. Like, mm-hmm. and, and I always think about that because it's interesting about, you know, I almost took a path of like doing stuff to make more money, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I, but I chose to pursue crap, you know, writing and, and creating things as much as possible because I do think it's a muscle that you have to work out. You can't just pick it up after 40 years out of nowhere, right? You got to do something with it to really train your mind. Um, but, but I mean, the point I was trying to make, I think, is that the individual versus the collective in the soul, you really, really have to integrate the idea of the individualist as this radically new idea from Ayn Rand before you can understand 
the implications of why that person would want to live in a political system of capitalism, right? Which is why when people accept capitalism without the soul of it, essentially, like they're accepting the body without the soul, right? They're saying, I want capitalism. And this is something that, you know, a, one of my former bosses and, and some people at ARI have pointed out is like, you know, Yoram points this out. It's like, you're basically making practical arguments, but people don't actually vote their, you know, that's one way Yoram puts it, right? Is people don't vote their pockets most of the time, which is true. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the reason why the Nazis were voted in. I mean, they're not just about po like the pockets books and people mm -hmm. are always voting stuff against their pocketbooks to do the right thing. And yeah. You know, what Howard Rourke thinks of as the right thing and what, um, you know, John Galt thinks of as the right thing is two completely different things than what a Peter Keating thinks is the right thing. And that's critical because even if Peter Keating pays lip service temporarily to capitalism, you know, it says that it's good that, you know, rich people keep their money. It's completely going to be different than how Howard Rourke uses it. And so, you know, I think that the essence of the art is that she's concretizing these these archetypes and she invented a new archetype. This is, I don't, I don't know if you want to talk about Jordan Peterson actually, but this is one thing I, I did 40 hours of uh, talking about Jordan Peterson on my podcast. I went through every one of his chapters, did a mm. podcast on it. I read at least one book for each one because mm -hmm. I, 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 I had a love hate relationship with them. I think I disagreed immensely with some critical things the more I dug into it, but I was really, um, I love it when anybody gets me to think in new ways, like gives me something new to think about, even if I don't agree with it. So anyway, what I find fascinating about him, and I've seen some of your stuff, so I'd love to hear your opinions on this, is, you know, he loves archetypes, but he doesn't like Ayn Rand's art. He likes Dostoevsky, which I find fascinating because it's like Ayn Rand created a brand new archetype that's never existed ever. And you don't have to agree with it, but it's it's a like John Galt, and Howard Rourke are two, like they're G, they're the they're the Jesus of a selfish of a rationally selfish per person, right? And Jesus in the way that, you know, um, not not morally, but I mean as an archetype, like as a person to like emulate. Even Ayn Rand said that, like she said that about art. The, what art can do is, you know, answer the question, what would Jesus do? And faster than you know how to how to you know think about it consciously, the answer comes to your head, and that's what great art does. But I don't mm -hmm. know, like. I find that interesting about Peterson that he doesn't like Ayn Rand's view or art. He likes mm -hmm. Dostoevsky. I don't know if you've read any Dostoevsky, but he I just know it's tragic. I know <laughs> it's, it's well, I know it's got value driven characters just like Rand, yeah, very yeah. motivated, efficacious characters, but it's, it's tragic. And of course the, the good characters are motivated by altruism as are most yeah. in history. So he wanted to, um, the Christian ideal was his focus. He wanted to create yeah. the Christian ideal. So, I mean, I'm suspicious of anyone who reads Rand's novels and doesn't have like an emotional response and doesn't feel like inspired. Like for me, it was like I've yet to have an equal response to anything there. The, 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 the day, the, the time I read The Fountainhead is still unrivaled. Um, there's no one else who, no one else has impressed me. No other author, no other creator. I mean, there's like music that I love. There's, there's lots of things that really inspire me, but it's, it's, I, I, I mean, to, to, to hear that Peterson, like, you know, talks about Rand's novels, like, oh, you, you know how they're going to end. Like, oh yeah, you, it's, it's predictable. You know how it's going to end. Like, 
Oh my! <laughs> it's just so. I, but I, I don't look. I don't know him. I've always found him to be kind of superficial. Um, his his he's intellectually curious within the safe zone within the purview of what the academia have trained him to to stay within, and that's that speaks to something deep within me because my whole journey and my the way I see it has been about completely wiping the slate clean, completely starting from scratch. And that's a big part of what I love about objectivism. It's that it's like, no, we're not taking anything for granted. We're really going to start from scratch in terms of knowledge and then values and all of that. So, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is, um, you know, and the fact that Peterson likes archetypes but doesn't like Rand's characters, I think to me suggests he he likes mundane char- uh, archetypes. He likes the father, the mother, and the, and the son. He likes the so-called Western archetypes, the the family, the um, the every person. I think that's a very uh, I mean that's like naturalistic art tends to depict things like that. I know he's into 19th century um, romantic art, as Rand classifies it, like Dostoevsky. But what he's um, what, what's he, what's Peterson out there telling people? What's he promoting? Is he telling people you can be the next CEO of a Fortune 500 company? No, he's saying he's saying get over yourself and then get to work and clean your room and 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 work to improve your life to a degree, but don't get too full of yourself and realize you have responsibilities. It can't it can't possibly be you know take into account the role, the value that, that other people have for you. So when you treat your wife well, or you uh, treat you clean, keep your community clean, or you um, treat your friends nice, and you invest in friends and friendship, it can't be that that benefits you. No, that would be too rational. So, you know, you need to balance your, your happiness with your responsibilities or your rights with your responsibilities, as though the two are um, antithetical, and it's about finding balance. So, you know, I've, I've, I still, I've, I'm always meaning to delve deeper into his stuff, but I've, I've just never found a good time. You know, there's just so much that I want to get caught up on. I just, I just listened to all of Peacock's Ford Hall Forum lectures on YouTube. Um, um, once I'm done with his lectures that are on YouTube, I'm going to um, go back to his earliest podcast days and just kind of get caught up on that. Like to me, Peacock is just, is just the gold standard. He's just the um, he just he's integrated. He's passionate when he speaks. Uh, I would have loved to see Peekoff and Jordan interact with each other because, you know, Peter or because Peekoff is my guy. Um, have you listened to Understanding Objectivism? Yeah. Have you taken that course? I, I read the book. I read the transcript. And it's one of my favorite. I mean, I, I, I hate to pick favorites. There's so much to choose from, but it is very impactful on me. I think yeah. uh, Understanding Objectivism it to me, if I had to sum it up, I would say it it warns you of of what in, of what intellectual mistakes you might make, and it it reminds you to integrate mind and body. So in exploring yeah. the the rationalists versus the empiricists, Peikoff shows you mistakes that in, that one person could make. I've often pointed out that in my own history, I see my intellectual journey as sort of a microcosm of Western civilization, really, starting with, I guess you might say, like the early life, early childhood, sort of pagan, um, like uh, enjoyment of life, and then followed by religious indoctrination, followed by uh, sort of a violent turn away from religion. I mean, I don't know if the turn from religion in the West was violent, but but that was my case, I suppose. 
um, turning away from religion and then falling soon into skepticism because it's, you know, rejecting religion is not in of itself a, a goal. I mean, an end. It, you need to have positive values in its place. So I fall into skepticism, which soon turned into nihilism. And then finally discovering objectivism, which hopefully will be the the <laughs> next step of Western civilization if there's time. If there's t- so so then I guess the do you mean if there's time in in terms of if we destroy ourselves right unless we we devolve okay. into something dark which I'm not in the business of predicting it's hard to imagine well but, even if we did like I mm-hmm. I think we could come out of it one day oh one uh, day yeah. I don't think anyone anyone doubts I don't think anyone doubts that it could happen one day but the question is does 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 the United States discover and embrace Rand the way that uh, the Catholics discovered Aristotle or, um, or are we going to fall into a Petersonian religious age and completely do away with, with freedom? Well, my, my hope with Peterson is in studying him and, and, you know, I love myths too, actually. I'm, I'm a big fan of myths, especially ancient Greek myths, but my hope is that what he's actually doing in the long run is he's helping people because I think he's secularizing the Christian myths in a way that nobody has ever done. And so I think, you know, by, by giving it a certain un, different basis and understanding of where, you know, the Adam and Eve story means and why it means that. And my fervent hope is that in like 10, 20 years, we can finally put the Christian Bible up on the bookshelf with all the other myths. And then, mm. then it's like, yeah, it's, it's good myths. Like I read ancient Greek myths and they're fascinating and they're great stories. And they tell us a little something about the world. They do. They, they were observing the world. The Greeks, you know, I, I think the Greeks were absolutely amazing. Peacock was the one who turned me on to the Greeks really um, years and years and years ago. Like, you know, he, he has this video um, why, like on he's on a boat <laughs> uh, with a whole bunch of objectivists in like the late 80s or early 90s and they're going to Greece and he's giving a speech about like if he had to live anywhere in history the one place he would go to is ancient Greek Greece mm. even though his life would be shorter and, mm-hmm. he go, and he talks about all the stuff and that really turned me on to you know besides the Iliad like really exploring um, Greece a little bit more but anyway so I think um their, their myths are interesting. I think the Christian myths do tell you a little something about the negative sides of our nature in a way that, um, which is a reality. Like there's a, there's fact to the negative side of what we can become, right? Like you can't, there is such a thing as suffering. That is an actual thing in, in, in existence. I don't think it's the whole thing. And I don't think it's the main thing, but it's something. Go ahead, well, please. of course, it, of course it's something. Well, first off, um, I, I also hope that Peterson is moving people in a positive direction. I've observed myself. One thing he's providing people is intentionally. I don't think he's doing I don't think he's doing anything intentionally. <laughs> I think, but um, he. <laughs> no, listen. Uh, look, if if he understood what's destructive about about uh, some of his ideas, if he understood what's wrong with them. He, he wouldn't be advocating them. One, one could say he's closed himself off from better ideas, and I would agree with that. I would also say it's very difficult for people late in life to um, – or for any age really, at any age to leave their comfort zone, tying back to my earlier observation. None, none of this is easy. Um, but listen, I've, there are many people who I wish like would read and listen to Peterson in terms of like they need some structure. They need – to challenge themselves more than they are now. Mm-hmm. In my case, 
Um, to me, it's like the my the last ten years or whatever have been like this continuous kind of struggle to um, reach the next step and to um, and to hold like big um, like big ideas, big goals as like the motivator and seeing no limitations on myself. So for me to to kind of accept this sort of like oh you get over yourself kind of mentality would be a step in the wrong direction. But I think for a lot of people, Peterson could be a step in the right direction but no it's i'm saying step i'm not telling them to settle um for for mediocrity which i think to a large degree is what peterson is selling he is selling um putting your dreams aside and just just settling down um so there is something very positive the fa- look i mean religion in of itself is more positive than skepticism which is why we're seeing the atheist community of the internet turning towards Peterson, turning towards religion. Again, a microcosm of history. What happened? Well, do you want to when... tell me more? I don't actually know anything about that. I'm not as. Do you want to tell mm-hmm. me more about what's happening with the internet? I don't know as much about internet culture yeah, as yeah. you do. I think so it's it's really the it's 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 the culture of. I mean, it's the history of philosophy playing out in front of your eyes, which you see over and over again. It's the rejection of religion, which you know, in the early days of like YouTube, when as soon as people were able to express ideas in video form, uh, you saw people debating religion and a lot and kind of this big atheist movement. And uh, the the four horsemen, I think, were like the. The figureheads of that, Sam Harris, um, Hitchens, and um, Dawkins, and I forget the fourth guy. And a lot of people like were like big into atheism, and they thought this was something new. They thought like, oh, finally, humanity can evolve past religion. We're dragging our feet on this. But you know, obvi- like I, I, I thought it was boring at the time. At that, at that point in the mid two thousands or late two thousands, I was. I was like I had I was well past that. I was learning about Rand. I wanted to learn more about like what's true, not just what's wrong with religion. And what what these um what these malinformed people on YouTube and on and and the four horsemen and all these people failed to see or maybe uh maybe did see to a degree but didn't see the importance of is that religion made a comeback in the West in America in in, in the industrialized world, religion made a comeback because reason was rejected, because the Enlightenment was rejected. And that's what happens. And so you see you see in the case of the the atheists, it starts it started with, you know, there's no God or whatever. We're challenging God on skeptical grounds. Basically, you can't be certain there's no evidence of this. But even if but then it turns into skepticism, right, because you need you need a criteria to say some to challenge the validity of religion. You need some kind of criteria. So they would come. Oh, well, science is superior. Okay, what are the rules of science? Oh, uh, you know, you need evidence. Okay, so you're saying certainty is possible? Well, no, because how do you really know that that the that the results you get in the lab today are going to be the same tomorrow? And I mean, this is what this is what you get, and this is what happened after the Enlightenment, and this is what happened in the you know the superficial Enlightenment of the YouTubers of the late 2000s. You get skepticism emerges from this rejection of religion. Skepticism tends to lead to nihilism which tends to just really open the door back back for religion again and now you see a lot of these same people warming up to religion they're warming up to peterson and they're saying they're saying oh yeah these 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 myths are just that but you know society needs these we need these stories we need these moral lessons and now like it used to be you would make fun of 
uh, you would get made fun of for being religious. Now you really get made fun of. You're more likely to get made fun of for being an atheist. Like, oh, so simplistic to be an atheist. You know, the real woke. It's oh, definitely moved. It's moved in that direction wow, in a lot, in a, to a large degree. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You know, the, the woke position now is to be pe- like Peterson is to say, mm-hmm. you know, yeah, there's science and religion, and there's a place for both, and that's really a. Set up that, in my understanding, Kant really created, Immanuel Kant. He said science has its purview and religion or faith has its purview and the two do not conflict. Basically, you can have them both. Um, science in order to understand this fake world and, and faith in order to understand the real world out there. Um, yeah. Um, so that's interesting though that, like I, I've heard you talk about that this in the internet culture, which is something that I think I'm not as f- familiar with yet. You know, I, I'm on the internet, but not in the way that I think you are, where there's, you know, this whole world. Um, so it's interesting that it's moving in that direction. I do think there's one. So I, I don't know if I wasn't clear on how I thought about Peterson. So you know, I agree with you in terms of, you know, maybe he's a step, but that's about it. What I think he's doing is secular without realizing it. So I don't think you realize. I think the way I don't know if you take listen to his myth series on YouTube, um, oh. but the, what I think he's doing with talking about these myths and giving them psychological basis, because that's what he's really doing is he's talking about like, well, Adam and Eve and the story of Adam and Eve is really about it's it, he's giving you a, an interpretive tool, which mm-hmm. is what is really important. You know, he's against postmodernism which is saying that you know postmodernism in, is actually founded in literature and literature studies that's where it started and you know it was in linguistics it was saying that there was no truth that you can get you can have a million different ways of reading a thing and so there's nothing you can actually get and therefore it could be whatever the hell you want it to be and you know and there's and there's all these different postmodernists that had different takes on how you do it and then you had feminists and then the feminists were marrying the uh, you know the the racist theorists and blah blah, blah racial theorists and it just kind of cascaded into intersectionality today but what peterson is doing with the myths that i've seen at least so far from what i've seen and listening to him is he's saying things like okay adam and eve is a story about you know um how in our own natures we have this ability to understand our own suffering and you know the way that because we understand that we can suffer we understand that they can suffer and this is represented in you know Adam and Eve when they are naked and they recognize their nakedness and that's part of what they're seeing in themselves from a literary standpoint is they're seeing their vulnerability which they did not see before they defied the laws of reality which is something that he puts it in and they they you know ate this uh, which is what he often talks about God is like this reality thing right and it's a representation which is the same thing the Greeks did. The Greeks said, you know, well, there's lightning. I don't know what is pre-science is before there's anything resembling science. Like, I don't know what that thing is. That's terrifying. Why, why do volcanoes just erupt? I don't know. There must be a, a demon in there or something. Right. And it's actually a very, I think, um, it's a pre-science. It's a way to look at the world. It's not the right way, but it's a way. Um, and, but what he's doing now is he's talking about it in that, you know, Adam and Eve, they're naked, they notice their nakedness, and part of what that means from a psychological standpoint is he relates it to, for instance, PTSD, which I think is interesting. This idea of PTSD, what they've discovered in psychology is that it's not just about, I know, I go to war, I know that I can do evil things, or it's not that I know people are out there in the world that do evil things, 
It's actually that I recognize that I can do those evil things too. Right? And he relates that to Adam and Eve. So my point is that what I hope he's doing with this is secularizing it in a way that is going to eventually make it just one of the other myths. You know, so we have, when you study myths, you, you study, you know, ancient Egyptian myths, the Greek myths, the, the Roman, which was the same thing, um, Nordic myths, and I hope we can put Christian myths right there. It's like, there's Christian myths, just like all those other dead ones, right? And I hope that's where we're going. Um, maybe not, but that, that's what I was trying to say. Yeah, look, I, he, um, some would say he's giving religion like scientific validity and like in like it's it, in, it, yeah. it entangling religion with this evolutionary psychology uh, that he's into. Look, look, my 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 beef with Peterson is not the fact that like he's a fan of the Bible or that he's he finds these stories interesting to interpret. To me, the fundamental questions are what exists. Uh, you know, how do I know and what should I do? Right. The the bottom three, the first three branches of philosophy and to all three of those questions, he's nowhere near like the rational um, position, like he's nowhere near what I've concluded to be correct. So his understanding of reason is all over the place. His understanding of of morality, of course, is conventional and very duty based again, you know, Um so yeah, he's giving people some like selfish motivation to get their shit together, which again is what I do like about him. But yeah. look, I mean, you know, and it's interesting to me that his fans or that he loves Nietzsche. And so his fans, like the number one protest on my history of philosophy video was like, oh, Nietzsche wasn't a Nazi. Nietzsche is not a Nazi. His sister lied. His sister rewrote his book. People are so concrete bound. They think that uh, Nietzsche's possible contribution to Nazism must have been anti-Semitism. But that's not mm-hmm. – it. to the degree that Nietzsche contri- contributed to the Third Reich, it was not explicitly by pointing to the Jews. It, w- it was by elevating will as above reason. So to me, reason is, is everything, reason and then a, a, a rational ethics. Yeah. You reject reason, which Peterson certainly does. Uh, you reject reason as all skeptics do. So the whole IDW, all of the Sam Harris, they all agree that reason has its limitations. That's why they get along so well with, with Ben Shapiro. They stay on, they each stay on their turf. Ben has his absolute, you know, supernatural, um, free will and morality. Sam Harris and, you know, and uh, Peterson's secular half have their sort of like cold materialist kind of deterministic side that doesn't, you know, doesn't interfere. Like they, they all agree with each other on, on everything fundamental. What, so, um, what, what, what they need is, is somebody to walk in and say, there is an, there is a secular case to be made. First of all, reason is possible. Um, and the axioms we begin with in philosophy is existence exists existence is identity so everything is what it is and then consciousness is identification so those three those three points and then to build up from there into um you know rand's theory of reason that we we perceive things that is not open for debate that is not open for dispute it is self-evident the beginning of all knowledge does begin with immediate perception from the time you're born there's no there's no questioning that because to question that is to presuppose your own existence and everything you've perceived in order to be here to question it. 
And then you organize that material with, with concepts, with, with abstractions, with, with building logically. Like that's, this is like, like all these places Peterson goes is like nowhere close to, to what I'm talking about right now. So to the degree he rejects reason, or worse yet, the degree to which he he kind of purports to embrace reason with a completely uh, confused understanding of what reason is, um, he's 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 moving us away. He's moving the culture away, um, or at least not bringing it any closer to where to what man actually needs to live and what a civilized culture needs to live. Now we are not like our. Culture, he talks about the archetypes, he talks about civilization and communities as though they're just a natural given, right? Like, oh, you know, we've got, we've got the, uh, the, 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 the family, the figures, the, the boss at work, the government, all these things. It's like, it's just a natural given, right? It's just evolution just gave us these things, right? So the question is how to get along in the system. No! The fact that we have a, a government of a certain style, the fact that we have a family living in a house in the suburbs with certain division of labor and certain roles, like that is not just a given. People, they choose, they make choices based on ideas and this can all get swept away. You know, we can fall into a dark age. We can fall to an invasion by another um, inferior uh, culture that they attack us and we don't have the moral confidence to defend ourselves. We can hand all of our uh, rights, you know, allow our rights to be violated by the government and let the government transform into a complete authoritarian body. That is so what Peterson is fighting against, right? Not particularly. He's he's fighting against that final stage of authoritarianism, but mm-hmm. he doesn't see he doesn't recognize reason and inalienable rights as as the as the fight against that and all and a lot of these i don't know if reason uh, i don't know if peterson in particular denies the dark ages i suspect he might but i know like shapiro and prager and the prager you the dark ages they deny that it was that bad they think the enlightenment philosophers uh, exaggerated um how dark it was so That's fucking weird what where do they get? What is their evidence for they, that? Do you know? I mean, I'm not accusing you. I'm just saying. I'm curious. No, of course. I'm. I mean, I. It's, it's, you it, know how I know that it's so bad is this is mm-hmm. my favorite example is I I have the great books of the Western world series and if you look at this, it's fucking hilarious because it's like Greek, yeah. a whole bunch mm-hmm. of Greek, and then it's like 500 years or 800 or a thousand years of nothing, like mm-hmm. nothing. And when I took a drama a history of drama class. I was a film production major in college. I took a, a, a history of drama class. So we went through all, from the beginning to modern times, an, mm-hmm. a survey of everything. And we only looked at one very small little play, and it was a, um, a what do they call it? A passion play. And that's it. It was called The Everyman. But it was, um, it was essentially, it was the only one that wasn't a passion play. Excuse me. It was, it was called The, but it was called The Everyman. And it was just about an everyday person who was religious and some, you know, and it's like, and then you get, you know, Shakespeare and Cervantes and all this stuff all of a sudden in the 16th century. And I was like, what the fuck are you talking about? No dark ages. Like, what do you mean by dark? Like, or what do you mm-hmm. mean by n- not dark? Like, mm-hmm. that's well, the that's, reason that's, it's called dark because there's nothing going on. Well, the same people who are warming up and cozying up to religion again are the ones doubting how dark the dark ages were because they're saying, oh, it's just an anti-religious um, exaggeration. Jeez, that That's what that's they scary. say. And so, That's I mean, what, 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 I watched a PragerU's video about the, you know, were the dark ages really that dark? And 
they had uh, this professor or this this guy with said with a straight face, you know, yeah, in fact, the uh, you know there there was plenty of innovation and art and and blah 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 the you know pro life stuff. He didn't use that phrase, but you know, earthly joy. He didn't say that probably either. But there was plenty of innovation and and good stuff happening. And he says with a straight face, especially you know the eleventh and twelfth centuries and or whatever. He's talking about the Renaissance. Yeah, as like, oh, see, it wasn't so bad. Well, you're talking about the part where the yeah, Dark yeah. Ages were ending, when when people were finding a better way. The, what was 500 it? 500 AD to 11th mm-hmm. century. 11th right. I mean, the, 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 the Renaissance was a rebirth of what? I mean, it was the rebirth of the pagan culture. Is, am I wrong or is that is yeah. that me twisting? I mean, that's my understanding. They rediscovered Greece. They rediscovered art. They rediscovered yeah. Um, you know, life on Earth being being Just a potentially be- beautiful thing. The history of philosophy—it's all you need. Absolutely, <laughs> and 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 one one many of the people commented, you know, typically the Peterson fans and those types saying, "Oh, hey, you actually believe the Dark Age meme?" They tell yeah, me, yeah. um, absolutely. Oh so yeah, there's there's protests that the dark they say that the Dark Ages weren't that bad, and also they say that yo Nietzsche had nothing to do. With Hitler, Nietzsche had nothing to do with Nazi Germany. And I said my exact words in the song were Nietzsche loved power and strength, but it's not reaching or a stretch saying he inspired Nazis. That's not saying he's it's literally saying it up. It's 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 up for debate. It's debatable in in Peikoff's word words. Um, Wasn't the the famous documentary in Germany called The Will to Power? Yes. So to the degree, to the degree that Nietzsche is responsible for the Third Reich, it's not that he particularly specifically said, let's kill some Jews. It's that he upheld will over reason. So all of those philosophers in the 19th century, it's not that they all wanted to see carnage. It's not that they wanted to see death. It's per se. It's that they rejected reason. So Look, I mean, these ideas have consequences. That's why when we're out here talking about reason, 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 this is not uh, our favorite color. It's not a, pre- a preference. Reason or death, right? Yeah. Think, think rationally or die. You will not be able to defend your political freedom, let alone be able to sustain yourself materially and with food. Well, the problem uh, is convincing people of that because it's not literally true. So I agree with it, like metaphorically, reason or death. But a lot of people, like you said at the beginning, default on that kind of reasoning, and they're basically but it relying on other people. Right, so they're living it, on the reasoning of other people who build things for them. So it is literally, them. it is literally true. But they have they have time to 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 default on it, well, and they may they may get away with it for a while. There, but yeah. they will. They're not. First of all, they're not going to reach happiness. They're not going to have a great life. But all, and also, they're not going to be able to deal with their problems that are that are their concrete problems in their life without reason. And then ultimately, they're going to see their political freedoms continue to get chipped away at so because what, we don't. We're not. They're not upholding reason as an absolute. Yeah. So, but I guess what I'm trying to say is like defaulting or gliding through life is possible, and people do make decisions of of their life. Like, how do I? you know, vote for this, you know, should I vote for uh, a tax on bags? Mm-hmm. You know, you should use your reasoning mind and think about it. I'm talking about like in California, like grocery bags, right? Like mm-hmm. I just got here from Texas. I'm like, I got to buy this fucking bag. You out of your mind. <laughs> and um, where's the plastic, man? Like I, I love plastic bags. What's wrong with you? But, uh, so, you know, I'm new to California again. I haven't been here in a while. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm from here, but I haven't been here in a while. But anyway, so my point is that, you know, people will make decisions and they'll guide their lives. But the problem is 
it's based on the reasoning improperly of like the misintegration, I would, I guess you could call it, from other thinkers that they just kind of regurgitate and act on. So the problem with the default thing and what I'm trying to get at is the, because um, I, I want to get at like one of the things I want to talk about before you go is about the, um, you know, depending on how much time you have is like the, what you think could be some ways to move the culture in a better way is where I'm trying to go at some point. But the, um, the default issue is people don't die immediately for one. So if we're trying to persuade them, convince them, you know, I agree with you that the masses are not inept, like they have, they have it within them. You know, I'm, I'm actually very optimistic about humans. I love humans. I think they have the potential, but the question is how do you persuade them and give them the, the right fuel to stop defaulting on reason and to engage their own reason for themselves? And, um, cause it's not automatic. So that's why I said it's not literal is because yeah. if most mm-hmm. people wake up and they don't like, you know, read a book on, that challenges their fundamental beliefs about environmentalism and how to make, mm-hmm. you know, uh, what what Ayn Rand would call first level free will decisions, right? Like, should mm-hmm. I vote for this or that? So I don't know. <laughs> I mean, I usually oh, come what, on, give me the answers. well. I, I, I have I have some clues. I have I have some okay. hints. Um, but I mean, so typically this comes up whenever I'm even just trying to debate with somebody about objectivism itself. As soon as it starts to make sense to them, they jump right over to, okay, but then how do we convince people? And I always need to say, well, 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 first you understand this, decide if you agree with this, have clarity. So when it comes to how do we change the culture, even among objectivists, I often say, like, first of all, understand it, understand it clearly, have a clear understanding of what's wrong with Peterson, have a clear understanding of the consequence of rejecting reason, both in the personal realm as well as in, you know, the societal, political level. Um, have clarity and live it. Challenge yourself. Don't be don't be a lazy mark. Really, really question what you're what you're holding on to, and really, really strive for the best. Be as cool as you can possibly be. Kind of like me. <laughs> and that's step number one. So decide if you're really on board with this. You know, this is this is uh, this is not a club. You know, I think Epstein said that this is not a club. Um, and then. Have, you know, communicate it clearly as well. Communicate it clearly. Have a very clear presentation um, to people if you're going to go into kind of, move, you know, spreading a philosophy. But it's it's hard. Probably the most like the, mo- the, the biggest concrete issue to deal with would probably be like education. Um, and and I, I don't just mean like infiltrate the universities. I mean, um K through 12, because that, that is where people are, are basically killed. Like their, their, their mind is just, Do you know the is just see Bradley Thompson. I I'm familiar and I like everything I've heard, yeah. but yeah, I mean, it sounds like he gets it, that that's, that that's where the battle ultimately, I mean, if, if, if somebody's mind is scrambled, look, I mean, I, I, I began going to public school in 10th grade and a lot of the kind of people I'm still somewhat in touch with are kind of friends from that period. Um, I know what it does to you. Like I know what public school life, man, you're not, you're preaching to the choir. I was, and it, yeah. And it's my youth and it's probably to a large degree. It probably the same thing probably takes place in, in, in most private schools as well. Um, so I mean, ultimately it's worse according to C Bradley, like Bradley Thompson and you're on, you're on has the story of when he was, he came here. I don't know if you've heard this. He came Mm -hmm. to America for a while and he was in one of the top, 
progressive schools. You've heard that? Yeah. And they would yeah. just sit around and yeah, <laughs> play. Like not do anything <laughs> and just whatever yeah. they wanted to be. And there is some mm -hmm. progressive schools that do that. Now there's some that, you know, the alternative is classical education mm -hmm. where they teach it, but there's problems with classical education too, because Although I would, if I like, if I had only one choice for my kid, I would turn him there than progressive. Mm -hmm. But, um, but you know, uh, Lisa Van Dam has done a great article in the Objective Standard about this uh, classical versus progressive education, and she points out one like there's a reason why there's so like um, what was the example? There's one she did on Twitter where someone was talking about like Asian moms are the best, and she she had like I think she said this. I hope I'm not attributing this incorrectly, but it was something like. Yeah, but look at the suicide rate among Asian kids. Like mm. you're, you're. So the the classical education model was basically to vomit facts into these kids, mm -hmm. the, without any, you know, integration and in teaching them that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think education is big. Mm -hmm. Well, let me say something. Go ahead. Yeah, about education. The point is not just that they they tell you to emote and to follow your feelings, but the pro the probably the, the arguably the bigger problem is is that they. They teach you to compartmentalize that this, you know, math has nothing to do with history and history has nothing to do with physical education and physical education has nothing to do with English. What's another subject? I don't know. Um, science. Like science, like that these things are all separate and everything is compartmentalized. I think integration is what is what man needs. And that's why the word integration appears early in my history of philosophy rap. And that's yeah. after reading the dim hypothesis, I understand that that's what the Greeks we're doing. They were. They were. You know, beginning with the many. everything is water. Yeah. Um. Yeah. Everything. Keyword being everything. Um. Yep. And I think there's a re that's probably why when Peikoff did his terrestrial radio show, he used to play this game where he would um give terrestrial? three op terrestrial radio. You know, like AM FM as opposed to podcasts uh, or sat satellite. Yeah. Sorry, I'm I'm a nerd or an outsider. I don't know what you call me. Yeah. No, oh, well, I thought I thought terrestrial is what grown-ups oh, call like yeah, the, <laughs> as opposed to yeah. like the Sirius XM. Um, oh, okay, go ahead. Uh, he he would give three items, you know, like Joseph Stalin, uh, calculus, and sex. you know, sex, whatever. <laughs> and and then he would that was challenge. My one. He did one mm -hmm. like that, yeah. Yeah, and he would challenge the callers to to integrate those three, to tell what they have in common or what or what ties them together. And I I think that's a, a game that Rand used to play with the the collective back in her apartment. Yeah. That so that's a good one. There, that's interesting. There's I would love uh, I love the I love games, let's and that's a game. Let's board game like that and sell it to. Let's do it. <laughs> well, let's sell it to everyone. Let's integrate. Well, we have to but, start uh, somewhere with the market that exists. But yeah. Mm -hmm. But I, I think, think um, everywhere we'd have to make it really cool. But anyway, go ahead. Go, go, go. But yeah, but that's that's I mean, that's I think what people are missing. So yeah, as long sure. as, as long as people are disintegrated, as long as they're not integrating, um, then the first person who teaches them to integrate is going to be a religious person. It's going to be a mystic. It's going to be Peterson or someone or someone else or some kind of half skeptic kind of um knowing skeptic as peacock yeah, might, yeah, might say. Yeah. um misintegration I, is the issue yeah that's so the real danger i think that i mean that's that's like that's kind of how i see peterson not again not to I say agree. that not, not to say his individual fans lives are getting worse by by following his advice but in the in the realm of where society is moving it's all the reason there's reason as an absolute and then there's everything else so as long as we're pushing reason away Bad times are ahead. I think he's, he's pushing people in shows. that direction. I agree. So yeah, I think in the direction of like 
that there's going to be a mystical leader in 25 years if we're not careful. And we won't know why, but if we look back historically to be like, well, this guy paved the way. Um, so I agree with you there. Like, I think, I think, I mean, I think our, our, our leader today arguably is kind of an emotionalist, uh, definitely like pragmatist kind of, uh, public school. Pragmatists are not as scary as idealists in terms of like, if you're the, a bad kind of ideal, like, Mm -hmm. like, um, um, Hitler was not a pragmatist. He was an arc idealist and that's where it gets fucking scary. And, um, yeah. you know, like Bush was more scary than, than, uh, Trump in a certain sense because he had, this is an argument Iran has made, so I'm stealing his argument, but because he had ideals and he wouldn't budge from those ideals. And that's where it gets mm-hmm. scary is if you have ideals that, you know, there's this horrible race of people that is bringing you down, or there's like a, you know, a, a, a white privileged person that's bringing you down and a whole society of them and you got to go to war with that. That's, that's where it gets scary. Although the opposite's more likely, I mean, this is a, ironically what I don't think postmodernists, I just have to point this out, postmodernists don't realize is if they're not careful, the opposite of what they want is going to happen. Because it's very unlikely that you're going to have like um, a powerful leader taking control of the military and everything who is going to go wipe out the white people. You're going to have like a strong white religious nationalist who's going to take over and wipe out everybody else. Like that's mm-hmm. what they got to be careful of. Well, they obviously, if they understood that's the consequence, if they if they understood the consequence of of philosophy, period, they wouldn't yeah, yeah, be postmodernists. But they, they, I mean, my under, my understanding as a student of all of this is the postmodernists, as well as all the other modernists, all the counter enlightenment students, they reject reason. They say reason might be able to tell you something, but certainly not everything. Like, so reason has its limitations. And then where's there to turn from there? There's feelings in the group. Yeah. And, and what you see all around you is a lot of groups and a lot of feelings. A lot of people motivated by f- either faith or their emotions or here's what I feel as a woman of color. Here's what I feel as, uh, this, uh, economic class, whatever. There's feelings in the group. Yeah. Um, or, or combinations of the two. And I mean, what, I mean, what's, I mean, the part of Peterson that I don't like, which is admittedly a big part. Um, I mean, what, what's he taught when he talks about religion? Obviously, religion is feelings. It's faith based. And then, you know, this community and the West as some sort of, um, as some sort of like group, like some kind of, um, the way he categorizes people and groups them together is, is, uh, I think a little on the misguided side. It, 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 these, these concepts we have, like Western civilization and, and countries, these are conceptualizations in order to organize material for, for convenience rather than, rather than trying to retain every, every individual aspect of it. You just group it together and say, okay, Western civilization, but Western civilization is not greater than the sum of its parts. It's, you know, Europe and its history is not some kind of, um, platonic form floating that then its constituents are kind of contributing to. Mm-hmm. Anyway, um, I'm sure uh, I'm sure nobody will ever take issue with what I've said about Peterson here today. I'm sure nobody will try to correct me on any of it. But um, I think the the, yeah. the the most troubling thing about Peterson, by the way, are, are his diehard fans um, or his vo- many very vocal fans. It's they cannot accept any criticism of Peterson. Peterson can never be wrong about anything. Um, no matter what I say, they'll say, oh, Peterson would agree with that, but he's here's all he's saying is this. Um, it's like, okay, but you know, the thing people accuse objectivists of is like of um, 
is a being like too protective of Rand and and defending her no matter what, which some people surely do. But the reason that someone like me is defensive of her is that she was so clear about what she believed. She was so clear about what she was not saying and clear about what she is saying. And then for people to misrepresent that is, is of course, upsetting and I want to correct it. Um, clarity is not important to Peterson and I don't think in his own mind nor in, um, I don't, I don't know if he believes in non-contradictory truth. It doesn't seem like he, he holds that as, as to be even a possibility. And, um, you know, he, he talks about like that people are like, I think he talks about that, like children might be afraid of snakes or afraid of growling dogs. And that's like evidence of like innate knowledge passed on through evolution. And, yeah, he definitely First, thinks, agrees with that. Yeah, the, but... The, the idea that there's something innate knowledge within us. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, he... So, um, first of all, I'm suspicious of the scientific evidence that says there's innate, uh, you know, fear of something. But suppose that's true. You are innately afraid of a growling dog, but that's not the same as knowledge that that, that, that dog is dangerous. Yeah. Um, well, and also... Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, there is some really interesting... So I've studied body language, like, um, mm -hmm. body language as an actual, like, FBI agent, how they study it for understanding a person that you're talking to interpersonally. And there, there is this idea that you have this, like, stem cell reptilian brain, and a lot of body language is instantaneous, uncontrollable act, reactions to certain things. And that is built into... You're born with that. So, um, you know, for instance, we do have certain things that were automatically built into us and even the way we in the way that we react i mean so like if you are um you know like like going like this a lot and, and scratching when you're talking you're pacifying yourself and so that's an indication that you're you're basically the person you're talking to is making you kind of uncomfortable when that happens and there's also like when you look at i mean there's a whole bunch of little things like that so yeah, but I again, we disagree. No, but well, well, a couple things. For, uh, okay, like these nervous habits and these tics. Like it's 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 very difficult to trust uh, the state of psychology. It's very difficult to trust these conclusive studies when they don't factor in what are the beliefs. Was what what does this person believe? What has he been um, in keeping in his mind his whole life with regards to what's true and what sh and what's moral? So. Living with contradictions makes you neurotic. So yeah, the fact that he that he does this a lot um, suggests he's somewhat neurotic. That he's living with contradictions. That he's not holding no, reason as an absolute. That, and, no, it's it's a little mm -hmm. different. So, so, okay. So like what I'm trying to get at is, so I agree with what you're saying just then. Yes, mm -hmm. you're right, 100. percent That there's other aspects. What I'm saying is like, let's say you and I are having a conversation in person, mm -hmm. and I'm talking about something. Um, that's making you uncomfortable. Once one possible sign. So, like one mm. of the first. So, what I read is not from psychologists. It's actually from like experienced FBI agents who are working with terrorists, and they're they're trying to figure out is this person lying or not, right? Mm -hmm. And they're trying to get information from murderers and liars and you know people. And there's what they what they, there's one called what everybody is saying. It's one of my favorite nonfiction books. I love it. And it's mm -hmm. by Joe Navarro. He was an FBI interrogator for like, you know, a quarter of a century or whatever. And what I'm trying to say about like the pat, like this is called a pacifying behavior is it's one, one indicator. So like one of the principles of reading body language is you don't look at one thing in isolation, isolate, isolation any more than you would look at 
an individual word in isolation of a sentence. Like body language, you need to get to know the person. So it's you're right, it's very possible they could just have, you know, uh, uh, neurotic tendencies, they could have bad, you know, uh, uh, posture, you know, they, they could be very nervous about things in general because they've been evading their whole life. But what you're trying to do is like push them and get to know them. That's why if you've ever seen interrogations, like there's an interrogation of one of the school shooters, mm-hmm. uh, one, the Santa, what was the Florida one? The the one in uh, Florida. I don't, I don't and, know. And it's like 15 hours long on YouTube or something like that. Like it's, oh, wow. And the reason they do that is they're trying to, like they're recording him the whole time and then they investigate it. They look mm-hmm. at everything he does, every little movement, because they're trying to understand where he's telling the truth, where he's coming from, why, he, you know, they're, all of that. So what I'm trying to, all I'm trying to get at with what I was saying with this stem cell idea is there are certain innate reactions. Now, I, I agree with you that it's not knowledge, and this, I think, is where Peterson goes awry is he takes it too far. And, and this is what I think other objectivists have pointed out is that, you know, like Greg Salmieri and Brooke and Ankar Gatze have pointed this out, that like it's really early in, psych, in this kind of psychology. Even Peikoff said like we're in the realm of, we're at the era of Thales or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and he actually, Peikoff speaks highly of Freud in a certain sense, even though he was crazy in a lot of things and conclusions, but he said he was like a Thales in the sense that he was integrating stuff and he was trying to integrate all of this new science before, mm-hmm. in a way that, and so, so again, I agree with you completely. I think where I, what I'm trying to get at is what I agree with Peacock or um, Peterson is he is, he sees something, he's trying to integrate it. He's just not doing it correctly. And what he is trying to integrate, what I would argue is, does need integration. You can't simply say, oh, it's reason and, and knowledge is not innate. Like there are new insights that can happen if we really understand the mind. You know, like I think we understand like 5% of the mind and the more we do, I think that is a valuable thing, but that means we're going to have a lot of fuck ups and weird conclusions and like everything is fire, everything is earth, everything is water. We're going to have stuff like that before we get to the Aristotle, I think. I agree that it's going to take a while to understand the human mind, um, but the main the main reason for that is the the way philosophy has gone. Of course, just as psychology was was becoming a a science, um, reason had been completely thrown out, out the window in the academic realm. So it's going to. I mean, the the main thing holding us back from learning things about people is the fact that. I think Binswanger said we're the psychology is I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. I think psychology is a is a science that only recently has acknowledged the existence of the subject. In other words, <laughs> like, I mean, they I mean, they, they people, they think they're being scientific when they talk about a person as though he's an automaton, as though he's just responding to reflex, um, responding to or re, a re, series of reflexes, responding to stimuli a person's primary um variable is ideas is philosophy specifically when it comes to what exists how do i know and what should i do um yeah so again so uh being afraid of something is not knowledge that that thing is dangerous it's simply wherever that comes from whether it's from it being unfamiliar or because it's it is innate listen uh, maybe maybe evolution made made us afraid of growling dogs to protect the species, you know, who knows? I don't know. But I do know that um, that fear of a growling dog is not what what gets what teaches you how to 
build a house and build a building and hunt and process and invent the steam engine and paint the Mona Lisa. So that that fear of a growling dog is a trivial part of 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 what it means to be a human, what it, what a, what a man requires in order to live in reality. Reason is um is kind of what makes or breaks you. What's the essence? It's everything. Without it, well, you're fucked. You- and with it, you you can reach your maximum potential. But what do you mean it's everything? So it's, it's like because that mm-hmm. I think Go it's ahead. the essence is what I would well, argue. What, well, what else is there? What else is thumbs, there? Thumbs. What? Like 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 fists, thumbs, Fist? nose, tongue, taste. Oh, like, I meant reason. I mean, in terms. Okay, yes, we have a mind and a body, of course. Um, okay. Reason is our is your is in, in order in order to live in order uh, what your nature requires. Um, reason is what makes or breaks you. So without reason, you don't know what to do with your thumbs. You don't know what to, well, you don't know how ha- the essence. It's not everything. Right. Yes, you're correct. Like we're not, we're not, force yes, is what I'm trying to get. At we're not, this. we're not floating ghosts. That's correct. Well, I mean, the reason I, I point that out is because it's not irrelevant what the stem of our brain, how it operates and how it affects us, especially if it's something that you can't control with reason very easily or maybe at all. Mm-hmm. Right. So that it's not irrelevant to understand, you know, like I said, why we act um, unconsciously or however you want to call it, like automatically, because there's definitely automatic aspects of our body that reason doesn't uh, have control over. But reason, I mean, what what you're saying, the case you're making right now, you're you're attempting to use reason to prove it. Um, there, like it, it all either falls yes. under the umbrella of of re- of reality and 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 must be discovered th- by rational means, or it's not. Um, yes, we certainly have we, we we have a biology, we have chemicals, we have hormones, we have pheromones. I mean, the. The, the appraisal of existence you have a moment after sex is not the same one you have right after your loved one dies. Like there's, I mean, or when you're hungry versus when you just had the best meal of your life. Or, um, I mean, you know, I understand. Or when you're on your period, there's something relatable. Um, <laughs> like I, I understand there's, there is biology. Um, and maybe it, it is possible that some people are naturally more prone to depression because of, serotonin look i mean again like we've agreed psychology and psychiatry are in its early stages um but what you do with this with this material what you do with the hand you've been dealt is you know the the in order to make to to do what you can with what you have reason is an absolute yeah i mean i don't think we're going to disagree on that Mm -hmm. i'm just um one of the things I, like I said, I wanted to, to ask you is what, because I think all of that is basically proven. Like, whether people agree with it or not, it's pretty much, there's work that can be done to make it more clear, and I think that's great. What? Like the idea that reason is an absolute, that reality exists, existence exists, consciousness, you know, um, is, is something that grasps, you know, existence and the fact that, it, like that whole Galt speech and the essence of objectivist ideology and what Ayn Rand created and what Peacock expanded on. And I think other people should expand on. I think there's more that can be done in the philosophical realm. Mm -hmm. What I'm, what I'm asking and what I'm trying to get at is um, what is, well, I mean, that has already been established, 
right? So we just have to, everybody just has to understand it. For the most part, it's been established, right? Like reason as an absolute is a truth, just like gravity exists. Whether you agree with, whether you understand the theory of gravity or not. What do you mean? What do you mean it's established? Do you mean the average person in the world today agrees with it? I mean, the fact has been discovered, just like the the Newtonian physics was discovered, whether you agree Mm -hmm. with it or not, or understand it or not, it doesn't fucking matter. It exists. And that's, and what I'm, and it's, it's relevant, I think, to that discovery because it's in the same way as if you get Newtonian physics, you can deny it, but it's not going to change the fact that you're going to go splat if you jump off a bridge, right? Like the, the reality is there. Ayn Rand basically just identified it and put it into great words that we can try to understand. So the, the words are there whether we understand it or not. She, she established the philosophy. Would you agree with that? I, I agree. I agree. She established a philosophy that um, was true. Is what I'm saying. That's yeah, I, I agree. Philosophy. I agree with the philosophy, but I'm a bit unclear on on what you're getting at. Other than that, well, because I'm trying to get to the idea of what's next. So under understanding it, understanding what's wrong with the IDW, understanding that all of these intellectuals engaged in their intellectual circle jerk are not moving the needle they are bringing nothing to the table and we need to and individually if you are interested in maximizing your life you need to hold yourself to the highest possible standard of solving contradictions and understanding uh, what's true and what's not because you under you're integrated to the point where you see the pursuit of truth as as the path to happiness and that everything, all aspects of life are integrated. So your intellectual scrutiny will help your career, will help your uh, performance in the bedroom, will help your, um, you know, athletic ability, will, will, will help you write stuff, will help you read with a better, ex- deeper experience. I mean, just everything is tied to everything. So understanding it uh, and under- understanding that these are not floating ideas, that it relates to personal accomplishments, personal happiness a personal success, understanding it, and then not giving the prestigious name of reason, the prestigious name of science to emotionalists, to people out there saying that, you know, you have innate knowledge that evolution gave you, that you have innate knowledge of the archetypes, that you, you know, that you have um, this, uh, that you have a duty to the community that you never chose, but, you know, that's when evolution calls upon you to, to have because, blank out so um i mean yeah i I think we're on the same page except that i'm curious of the how of all of that so internally i know how to do that you read the books you you learn you write you think you engage you try to understand am i being honest and you know like you try to live the best individual life that rucka can live and that kurt can live but I guess that what I'm asking is like how, you know, I, I hate to bring an analogy to religion, but I, I'm going to go ahead. Like how religion spread, they did a very good job of distilling very, you know, um, most people don't really understand their own religion, right? The vast there's there's a couple intellectuals and then everyone. I mean, for the longest time they said it in Latin and everybody just fall like they didn't know what the fuck was going on during the dark ages. You just went and listened and I don't speak Latin. What the fuck are you doing? Like you know and you know I speak a, a new version that's branched off of that 500 years ago. And but what I'm saying is like 
it's we have everything you've said is true in terms of like the culture, for instance, that we live in, where um, P- Peterson is effective because he's essentially just helping people who agree with a certain ideology already see it in a slightly different way. And maybe it's kind of interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. So the question is how, what's the method, you know, what can we do? I, I'm now, you know, I, I freelance, I've been freelancing most of my life and now I'm at an opportunity where I want to go do more stuff. So what, what can we do to create some kind of change in people's lives? Well, it's hard. Um, it's not easy. Um, it, I, I've been dragging my feet in answering that question because I don't like the idea of even focusing on that without cleaning your own room first. So really, really make sure you're, you understand this. Are you really holding yourself to the highest possible standard in life? That being said, if there is a possibility of spreading objectivism, it's by having the coolest most confident, integrated, successful or ambitious people saying with confidence, here's the truth and fuck what you think, you know, not (laughs) not, the one I agree. But but one problem with that in general is that generally speaking, people who, if they don't focus on it as a career, for instance, spreading an ideology, if they don't do that, then they, if they're productive, right, they're focused on, I want to create the boom engine, right? Like, um, you know, that, that objectivist who's creating a new supersonic plane, just fucking cool. And that's awesome. And I think he should, and I, there are objectivists doing that by the way, like doing great stuff like Doug Peltz and Keith Schock. Do you know about them? No. So they created a, um, something called mystery science. Mm-hmm. Have you heard of that? Maybe. And yeah, they, I think they've so. reached a million over a million kids in the last and they only started like four or five years ago, four or five years. Mm-hmm. Ago. And yeah. they're, they're doing a whole new way. It's called grab and go science lessons. And it's two the K through 12. It's mostly under like third, like uh, kindergarten, first, second, third grade, teaching them science. He worked at Laporte. I used to work there, too. And he was the best science teacher ever. Like I couldn't, I, best teacher is amazing. And he's still amazing. And I really recommend, I love mm-hmm. watching his stuff, even though I'm like 33 and he's talking to first graders. It's fucking amazing. But he, it's very integrated. He does it based on a certain hierarchy. It's great stuff. And they're having a lot of success. So, mm-hmm. and, and that, you know, so they're spreading objectivism then. That's one, that's one way. Um, I like Jesse McCarthy. He was also at Laporte and he's a parent coach actually now. He's worked his whole career in education and now he's teaching Montessori and he's mm-hmm. teaching parents how to be a little bit more. On those yeah, places. I think I think Craig Biddle also like he Craig sees Biddle, like yeah. he sees like the the Montessori scene as like the future like founding fathers like it only takes a handful of integrated people life life affirming you know life pro life people so to speak just just changing the culture he could be right the the world I live in is more like pop culture and um sort of yeah, the the world of memes and the attitudes of the culture. And what I'm saying is I want to see the the mega successful, the 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 Jeff Bezoses of the world speaking explicitly of reason as an absolute, explicitly of man as a heroic being. Yes. You know, well, I would that, love to see that, too. He's so that like, that what but I'm that's is- that that's how. And if there is going to be an objectivist movement, um, rather than trying to fill up an event with as many college students as they can. Nothing wrong with that, by the way. But the main 
focus should be send little nuggets of gold to CEOs who you deem to be honest and and heroic. Send little nuggets of gold to the very successful, whether Olympic athletes or actors or whoever it is, little notes saying thank you for your success. Sorry about that. I figured while we're reconnecting, I'll go uh, take a leak real quick. Oh, so you okay? So there was a disconnection because I I didn't have a disconnection on my end. I kept seeing you. That was you funny. heard me and saw me, and then I just stopped talking and just yeah. Walked it was away. so weird. I was like, did he just have a heart attack, or did his brain like have an aneurysm? Like <laughs> that's the, funny because you that's were just funny. like you were going like and and then I'm going and I was just it, like to me there is nothing like no mm-hmm. stop. So anyway, I'll oh. I'll just like cut that out that's hilarious or maybe just keep well you don't even have to cut it out you can just cut out the part where i'm like out of the room but like that's funny that i just stopped talking like you can keep that in (laughs) and then this explanation would be good so you you, i would just keep it all in but the point anyway go ahead mm -hmm. but to finish my point if there's going to be an objectivist uh, effort to like spread the philosophy yes have certain a focus on how to infiltrate the universities have a certain amount of effort on kind of reaching as many students as you can and seeing if if one of the bunch decides to be the next great intellectual but most importantly i would reach out to the people successful the the rich and famous and say thank you and if you'd like to learn more about um, how to be more proud of your success and how not to feel any guilt and how not to deal with issues like depression and addiction, which these people deal with. Right? These are human beings. You know, people act like like rich and famous people are in another dimension. They, these are human beings. They and, and the average person treats them like an ATM. The average person just wants them to write a check. So don't reach out to them and say, hey, will you write us a check to spread objectivism? Reach out to them and say, hey, would you like would you like to join the Olympians? Would you like to come to a place where you're appreciated and celebrated and we 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 are in the business of celebrating success and teaching the tools for non-contradictory joy in life and then the donations would come of course it would be like look at scientology you think they reach out to people the will smith and tom cruise and all these guys and say like hey can you give us money no they they offer them a value they offer them the promise of of success and happiness and the, the donations come in in droves Okay, so let me. That's an interesting segue because <laughs> I I have um a funny story of how that that Scientology works. I don't know if you've ever been involved in that at all, even never. But I, so I I had an accidental run in with a Scientologist, and I I just my girlfriend at the time had just broken up with me, so I was like heartbroken and devastated, right, and just sad and trying to figure out things, and it's a very vulnerable time for for some people, right, and. So I was trying to figure things out. I was going to like groups. I was meeting people. I was meeting girls again. And, you know, things were, and I, I met this interesting girl and we had a really interesting conversation and she had me and, you know, she just told me that she deals with like psychology and therapy and things like that. And, you know, would love for me to take this like online personality quiz. And it was basically just like any, like Myers-Briggs, anything a little bit more. I, you know, I was like, Oh, you know, she's hot. And we headed off. So I was like, all right, fine. Whatever. If that's what you're into. Okay. I'll give it a shot. I'm, more open to things maybe. And I took it. It was actually very revealing. It was, it was very revealing to me as a person. And I was like, this is interesting. I didn't know. I never looked at me in that way. And then, um, we met again and then, uh, we, she invited me to go to this, um, to go to her offices and talk to her and, and her boss so they can, you know, talk about my issues and, and how maybe they could help. 
And I, so again, I know I don't know what's going on. I, was, I just know that she's attractive and it was actually insightful. Um, so I'm revealing a lot about myself, but uh, you know, so I go, and I just remember like one, it was like in this weird industrial part of Irvine. Uh, and I was like, this is a weird, like it was like in the back of, it wasn't like in the normal part of town. It was like, there's, you know, storage facility, storage facility, and then this big white building and there's nobody around. And I, like, I was like, oh, okay, this is kind of weird. So I, I walk in and there's like a, an open shower right there and there's someone just getting out of the shower. I thought that was fucking weird, but I was like, okay. Yeah. And then I walk in and I go down this hallway and all of a sudden like there's this burst of, of a room. It's this big room and all around me are L. Ron Hubbard uh, books, like just the whole shelves of it. All mm-hmm. I was like, oh, shit. Now, and then we had a conversation. I just stayed and I like I listened and I wanted to, I was curious at this point, even more than normal. But my point is that you're right, that that's not what they do. They provide a value, but they also take persuasion very seriously. So for instance, you can't just become, you can't just buy your way into the top. They understand human psychology and motivation, and so they, they make you work for every bit. They, they use mystery and intrigue. I mean, it wasn't a coincidence that there was an attractive woman that was trying to get me to go versus a guy, you know, mm-hmm. and all those types of things. So when I ask how, so, you know, one thing is if you want to talk about, like, how to influence a Bezos, that's, that's a question. It's an interesting one. Another one is how to influence the future Bezos, which I think is what you do with education, with mystery science. I mean, you know, with, with getting these college kids, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, like I came out of that kind of thing. I was an early OAC student, you know, I heard about it in college and such. And so it impacted me in that way. So it's the, the issue is, I think you said this uh, when we were just chatting yesterday outside of this, that you're kind of impatient. So I wonder if part of it is you want like that fix of going straight to Bezos, because you're right. If Bezos, um, by the way, Bezos is opening Montessori schools, which is a good thing. But but if Bezos, if Gates, if Buffett, if Musk, if um, if uh, uh, um, Joe Rogan, if all these guys all of a sudden started saying, you know, I think there's something interesting about this objectivist thing. I like this. Let's let's do some more investigation. And they do a whole bunch of series of you know talks on it, and they listen to it. And and then they start advocating for reason. Yeah, that would change the society a little quicker. Although I don't think it would. I think people would, you know, just demolish them in general because uh, it's a little early. But I think. Um, well, if it happened overnight, of course, now we're living in a fantasy where it's like just overnight a bunch of influential people. It's like a premise for a comedy movie. Um, <laughs> it, you have to you have to suspend your disbelief to just go to this place where suddenly those. You know, seven people you just listed are suddenly like talking about objectivism. But I mean, it is very difficult. But I mean, that's 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 what it would take. So when you, we're talking about like, well, how do we change the culture? Well, for, be Bezos, be Bill Gates. That doesn't mean be a billionaire. It means be the guy, you know, be the guy. I'm trying, people see. I'm trying, well, try harder. Oh, be the guy. <laughs> when people see you, they're like, that guy's cool. You know what? Well, what you know? The- you and I agree on that. I think we're not disagreeing mm-hmm. on like the level of this is why I mentioned pelts and shocked. And there are some mm-hmm. cool, Ray Gurn. There's people who are very successful. I think you're on Brooke. I think there are, you know, other objectivists that are just successful in their business. And then, you know, they, it happens. You discover later if the people that like them, the people in their inner circle, 
they discover that they're an objectivist and then they say, that's why I was successful, I think. And that was a big part of it is that, you know, I used reason. It's, it's like, I think one of the best objectivists is, um, oh shit, I've even met him a couple of times. How am I forgetting? BBNT, John Allison. Mm-hmm. I know his, you know, I know his son too. And I was like, John Allison's a very influential person because, and not even like on a huge cultural level, but just in terms of like other bankers and other people in finance that do look up to him, which is a good amount of people. They are at least, you know, inclined to think, well, maybe it's not the end of the world that he has this objectivist thing. Like they're at least a little bit more tuned that it's not the devil. Right. So, so I mean, all, all these people you've listed are great, but like they're all too nice. Like they're all way too nice. Like I'm not in, I'm not in this whole like I don't have this ARI mentality of like let's just show people that objectivists aren't that bad. I'm like, are you kidding me? Are you like we? I have the truth on my side, and you want me to sit around here waiting for Ben Shapiro to finally sit down and have a conversation? I'm going to fuck him. <laughs> <laughs> oh shit! I'm gonna cut that out right there. There you go. Make up, make up, make like a trailer for I'm this. I'm gonna start my own parody channel. I'm gonna fuck Ben Shapiro. All right, you got yeah, it. Yeah, um, uh, yeah. You no, know, look. I mean, I'm not. I look, I'm saying. not. Well, d- well, well. Maybe the audience doesn't know. So okay, I want to okay, explain. Go for it. Go for it. Like, I think, like, I think Leonard Peikoff is like the standard. The way he, like, he, he would speak, like, bug-eyed, like, just so, like, earnest, like, like these ideas ha- are life and death. So he understands that he's talking about it like like he's urging you to agree with him, but also like he's providing such clarity. So I understand that not every person um, politically, quote unquote, in, in terms of like logistics, they can't get away with mouthing off at the world. But to some people, first of all, can like John Allison, he requires his employees to read Atlas Shrugged, I've heard. Um, he has if he, leadership teams, yeah. If he wanted, if if he was the type of person that wanted to get out there and give his opinion, he he certainly has the wiggle room. He's, his career is not going to be pulled away from him. So, not to say he should. Again, I'm not, I don't want anyone to do anything that that that's not like what they want to do. It's what like I'm I'm that guy. I love I love to say like, wait, hold on a second, wait, hold on, like we we don't we don't agree about this. Like, let's talk about this. I mean, I've done it. I think a little bit with you here today. Like, well, hold on, let's focus on our differences. Um, so, but, but that's what I'd like to see more. If all of these successful objectivists also had this kind of, um, sort of confrontational streak. Yeah. Not, not mean. you know, Peacock is not mean. He's not mean at all. I, th- I mean, I'm sure he snapped once or twice, but I've only seen him snap at objectivist audiences, by the oh, way. He's the Peacock sigh. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I've only seen him. Like I've only seen him. Yeah. You, you, like, mm-hmm. you could just tell he's just exacerbated by stupid people. <laughs> And he doesn't want to say it. He's like, <sighs> he does this like deep, deep <laughs> I've, sigh. Well, lot. I've certainly, I've heard the sigh when he's like frustrated at like how messed up the world is. But <laughs> yeah, he does it a lot. Um, I've only seen him get impatient and like snap angrily at like an Ocon audience in like the America versus Americans lecture when these guys, they just want to get up there and just like tell him how it ought to be. Yeah. But like at like Ford Hall Forum, um, he's, he's just, he's earnestly saying like this, this girl, I, f- I forget which, um, lecture it was. It might've been the OJ Simpson, um, lecture, this girl or a young lady rather got up and she said, she said, you know, how do we, who determines which reality is true? 
something like that. And he said, well, your question itself presupposes this kind of Kantian authority on what's true. There is no authority. The answer is you determine what's true, beginning with your sense perceptions, which are, you know, self-evidently true, and then build, building with logic on, on top of that, like organizing the material. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sure he worded it more, more yeah, yeah. good than this, but, but he just, he, he wasn't yelling at her. He wasn't putting her down. I, I would imagine she was a bit taken aback by how uh, helpful he was in that situation. I would be very inspired if um, if I got such a powerful answer to that question. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, I mean, there, there, there's this sort of split maybe in the objectivist movement, quote unquote, over the years. Like there's the 1980s edition of objectivists like Binswanger and um and um peacock and uh, uh who's the uh, who's the uh, Ayn Rand letters um I, I i've met i've had lunch with him a number of times he's 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 beautiful um but i forgot his name so yeah. i don't i don't even want to say his name anyway i don't I, we don't need people don't need to know who's eating lunch with whom in this town but um <laughs> the, the the 80s guys like they were the og just like well, all right let's take on the world let's get out there let's debate let's I know. Um, uh, who's the who's the the guy from the socialism debate? I like. He's not the one I've met with, but who who's the guy? Ridpath. I like him oh, a lot. Oh yeah, yeah. Ridpath. What well, what a what a star. You know, he would he confidence. Star, yeah. he, well, he, that's you know what's where you that's what you're into. I'm just saying he was a, he was a star. Um, he. <laughs> So th- these guys, they were OGs. Oh, now were they um, in touch with the culture? Maybe not so much. Were they in touch with like with what's happening out there in the culture? Maybe not as much as I would have been if I had been around. Um, these were not um, entertainers. These were not famous entertainers. They were not um, – they, they were bookworms, right? I mean that, and that's who this philosophy tends to attract first. It, it, it appears to be intellectuals, people who are really into books and, and ideas and oftentimes to their own detriment. It, it kind of keeps them from, uh, from integrating these ideas properly. They become rationalistic. So there's kind of that like old school, like let's like hard hitting, let's let's show the world attitude, which I love. But what they were missing was kind of like um, being in tune with the culture in the in the, as much as possible. And then the more modern version of the objectivist movement is more like I think the stated purpose is let's soften the culture. Let's show people that we're here to learn and and to teach and and we're all you know, we're, we're just, you know, we're, we're not so bad. Let's show them that Rand isn't so bad, which is a good attitude. But the, I think the, the two, the two need each other. I'd like to integrate the two. I, I, I think I am showing, I mean, again, it's like, I'm not in the business of spreading objectivism. Like it's just, it's a passion of mine. So I'm out there talking about it. I'm confronting ideas and people that I disagree with in my own way, either in either directly or indirectly. Um, I'm creating things that I want to create. I'm saying things that I think ought to be said. And to the degree that I am influencing people, I think I'm showing them both sides. I'm showing them this earnestness, like this earnest confidence, like this earnest um, dedication to the truth. But also I bring with me a, a, a catalog. I bring with me a career and this sort of household name and um, body of work that's very much in touch with kind of you know uh people's everyday desire to laugh so um you kind of need you need both you need the ideas the confidence with in terms of the ideas and you need to live in in contemporary society so it's kind of like you you could compare to the mind and the body right 
The, yeah. We've got a mind and a body. You need to integrate the two. Thank you. All right. I like it. Um, so I guess the last question is, you know, because I agree with all that. And the question is moving into, um, you know, making changes, which is what I'm interested in. I am interested in that. I, I agree with you. You need to order your own kingdom is how I look at it. Is you need to you fix your own life, you know, um, understand the ideology. And the way I look at understanding the ideology, especially with Ayn Rand and Randians and Randoids, is that you need to, in my view, you need to be able to get to a point in your intellectual development where you can put Ayn Rand on the shelf with all the other great thinkers. And maybe she's at the top of the shelf for you because she's so impactful, but you do need to be able to understand her and understand Nietzsche and understand Kant and Hegel. And Rand herself said this. I mean, her whole um, philosophy, who needs it, you know, series of uh, essays that she put in that book was about, you need to take responsibility for your own intellectual development. And she hated church on Sunday objectivists. She called them not hated, but she disliked and was, was against. And she said, don't be a church on Sunday objectivist. She called it. And, you know, so I, I agree that the first thing is to not be a church on Sunday objectivist. Don't just dial it in and listen to what she said and then just apply it. Like you need to be a thinker. You need to, you know, even if you're not going to be a professional to the degree that you have time, read other books that are not Ayn Rand, you know, and, um, and then come back to Rand. Like I do that all the time. Cause she's, she has stuff to say about a particular subject. If I'm doing a, a whole series of podcasts on, you know, genre and art and, you know, things like that. I, I often go back to the art of fiction, non-fic, you know, um, the romantic manifesto and things of that nature. And anyway, so, so the, the, I agree. That's step one is first, before you go out there, um, integrate for yourself and, you know, but and start that journey. Cause it's never going to be done is the other thing. You, you can't do it completely. And so we have to have some people who take the initiative and go out and are the firebrands. And then I guess the second thing is, um, you know, I understand what you're saying with the nice thing. I I think it's a case by case basis. Some objectivists, they're just nice, and that's just who they are. And and some of them, you know, um, like I don't know that John Allison can be as firebrandy as you think. And if he wants to maintain, especially when he was at BB&T, he has a responsibility to his shareholders. And like there there was a great talk by John Mackey, the CEO of Whole Foods, where he talked, he, he was talking at a, a, a mastermind, I think, or something like this, this big event or something. And he was explaining how he, you know, wrote this book about capitalism. He, he came out for capitalism and his stock took a huge plummet. He got attacked by everybody and he had to back off because he has a responsibility to his shareholders. And, and eventually he's, he decided to retire, I think partly because of that. <clears throat> so, so there, there are, there are real life things that people have to take into consideration when they do that. And, you know, if you want to make incremental movements, but I also think, and this is where I, you know, I'm excited to meet you. And I, I loved working with um, Alex Epstein because I think he's doing this. And, you know, I loved working with the Ayn Rand Institute. I think they're moving in this direction. And why I hope I can work with you more and we can figure something out is there are, you know, Peacock brilliantly put a blueprint in dim hypothesis on, on how to change the culture. He said there are four pillars of a culture, right? Education, science, art, politics. That's it. And I think he's right that those are the, the structures within a society that that is that that's what you need to understand 
within that. You're in the arts. I, I consider myself to be or want to be in the arts and maybe understanding it a little bit differently in this new media landscape. But I think the kinds of things that we can create were shows where like if you're a firebrand and, and I'm not afraid of anything, like I'll go into like an, an SJW um, rally. I'm not, I won't, I wouldn't be afraid. I'm luckily I'm big enough where I, most people are afraid of me. So I'm not really that worried about it. Um, but I would, you know, that, that, that those kinds of things like making fun shows and getting in people's faces or, or asking them questions like how Alex Epstein did with Wall Street, you know, the Wall Street people or the, the um, what were they calling it? Uh, Occupy Wall Occupy, Street. Like he, uh, Fisher did that or, or the, what was that guy's name? The uh, the hedge fund guy. He did that. Um, Euron Brooks' friend. The, the uh, He's always on Fox talking about the end of the world, the end of economy. Schiff. Schiff Peter Schiff. You, Peter Schiff. Like how he did that with Occupy Wall Street. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen Alex Epstein when he was holding his I love fossil fuels thing and like yeah I I like that by the way and I think um, Ruben once told me that like the most angry um, like mail he's ever gotten was after interviewing Epstein yeah, um, yeah, yeah. but but it, I mean Epstein needs to want to be provocative like he needs to want to be the guy with the sign like you know like not everyone's gonna be you know. Um, like a Milo type of provocateur. Um, well, so the question for you though is that, yeah. like maybe not as extreme as Milo in that kind of way, but are you desiring to to go out in those things and make those those types of things? Because you can't rely on other people to do it. Like you're advocating to do it, so go do it. Like you told me yeah. to go do it. I agree, and I'll go well, I, with I, you, man. Like I I like it. I'll, I I think it's awesome. Like I'll do it. Like I, I'm not as I don't think I have the comedic thing that you have. Um, but well, um, I'm I'm I, like I'm not even comedic. I just I just say it. Like I just tell it. I think I'm just saying stuff. Um, but again, like the the question of like what to do and how to spread these ideas. The first question is, you know, do I understand these ideas and do I agree with it? And am I ready to? Um, really challenge myself and to really learn on the job and to continue to challenge myself. And, and that's kind of the, um, that's the important part. And, and even, even now it's like, I still don't really like see myself as like a, an advocate for objectivism. It's just, I love talking about it. I love learning about it. I love sharing what I'm learning. I'm learning a lot, like the, over the last year and some change I've, I think in, I've come a long way in understanding mm -hmm. um, these ideas. A lot of the things I focused on in my earlier video, you know, commentary videos, I probably wouldn't have even said today because they're like non-essential. Maybe not a lot, but certain things, I suppose. Mm -hmm. um, what am I? Uh, yeah, I, yeah. Look again, like any conversation we have about like how to spread objectivism, you're going to get resistance from me. I'm going to keep on saying over and over again that should not be anyone's main focus i mean i guess it could be a career path if someone really really is comfortable in their own skin um and understands these ideas and just is passionate about it um so yeah that passion confidence and not really needing to be there so that's kind of why i'm apprehensive because when you do it is your source of income to like talk about objectivism to spread objectivism then well, of course, you're now you're relying on on donors, right? And then maybe the donor wants you to talk more about economics rather than epistemology. So there's there's all these inherent problems in that, and then 
Um, you know, I, I, I like the idea of like of captains of industry who don't need they don't need to talk philosophy for a living. They kind of volunt like they kind of bring it out like they, they step forth and do it. And um, and I, like I said, they're out there just saying, here's what's true, you know. Yeah. I mean, I think that was Ayn Rand's point about the division of labor between intellectuals and businessmen, though, is that she True. was saying they need she her whole point was that you need to have a group, a class of individuals in a society mm-hmm. that are, you know, defending reason and they're out there doing their best. And I think it's a mistake to say you got to know everything about the philosophy. I think what you should do is if you don't quite understand a particular thing, be honest, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, focus on what you do know. So I yeah. tend to try to bring things into like myth or, or literature because I tend to know that better. Um, you know, I'm not a philosopher by any stretch of the imagination. No, I, I agree with you that you need to be clear. And I try to do that myself to say, I'm a little unclear on this, but here's my understanding so far or et cetera, you know, disclaimers like that. Um, and yes, there, there do need to be intellectuals, I suppose. Um, I, I you know, these, in, the, all these academics, it's like, I don't know if they're weird because of the, the mode of education or if, just being an intellectual makes you detached and awkward. Um, yes. But we need to find <laughs> yes, – th- there needs to be a, the Gen- birth of, of the bodybuilding intellectual. Like there needs to be intellectuals with rhythm and confidence who actively are social yeah. and and cool as a motherfucker. Well, that's why we got to go out there, Rucka. You and I, let's go out there and let's make a show, man. That's what I I'm think saying. that's let's what – record I, some stuff. I think that's what we're doing. Got some, got some, ca- but I mean, outside, like let's confronting people. I mean, I'm not, I don't, I don't think, <laughs> I don't think going to a particular event and getting in someone's face is a very, is what like the yes. essence. What do you think? That's I mean, cause, cause what we're, we're getting in someone's face, you know, it's easy to go to Occupy Wall Street. I'm not going to say it's easy cause I didn't do it, but, um, it's relatively easy to go to Occupy Wall Street and challenge them and talk about the benefits and, and even moral sort of to, to get, touch upon the moral virtue of capitalism. But, um, but to get out there and talk about epistemology and reason, I mean, I, I do that. I went to this thing called MythCon. Um, they're all skeptics and in some case, you know, semi-religious. I, I am out there. I'm out there talking to all these guys. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm talking to the, the, the myth, myth informed podcast, uh, the day after we're recording this, I'm going to talk to them. I am, I am like sort of confronting people, but most importantly, I'm understanding, I'm learning these ideas, mm-hmm. I'm applying them, and then I'm explaining them within my context. So I've been doing this series on my commentary channel called How to Live Sober. Rucker and that's it. So How to Live Sober is the series. I'm, I'm up to part 14. And it began very, very, kind of very slowly, kind of walking through these different ways that philosophy applies to your personal inner world. Uh, talking about implicit ideas as opposed to explicit ones and kind of moving on up into axioms and then, um, the, the, the what happens when you reject reason and, um, relating it periodically to, um, to sobriety and occasionally trying to relate it to the 12 step program and how the 12 step program can be evaluated, not just wholesale, either it's all good or it's all bad, but what's good about it and what can be, how can some of this be interpreted in a way to, to actually get a benefit from it? 
if you have if you're learning to get if you're trying to get something uh, positive from it and um, to kind of step by step walk through what I'm learning. And I'm reading Objectivism, the philosophy of Ayn Rand for the first time. Um, and so as I've as I'm reading it, I'm relating it and 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 integrating it into the series that I'm doing. So there I mean, there's an example of me kind of, you know, talk walking the walk, as they say. So I am really doing that. And but I'm not concerned with how many views is this going to get. I'm not marketing it. I am just simply creating products. I'm creating videos um, and articulating myself as best I can. And um, there's no telling who it's going to reach. It, it, it may reach very few people. It may have no long-term significant um, impact on the culture. But I'm, I'm doing what I know how to do. And, um, and that's what I like to do. That's cool, man. Well, I'm going to keep trying and, figure out what we could do. Sounds like fun for me. I, don't know about you. I mean, over and over again, I'm, I'm going to repeat same, same it. it right. It's the, what am I, what? Well, you said over and over again, you're going to repeat the same thing. I thought you meant like you were going to repeat that it's about learning about for yourself. And then you're yes. really focused on yes. it's not your main focus to go out there, but it's something you'll do. Yeah. And that should be your focus as well. I mean, you should be looking to improve yourself as much as possible and cleaning your room, so to speak. Um, to borrow a phrase from our fa my favorite, clearly my favorite intellectual of the century, yes. um, you know, mm -hmm. challenge yourself and really see like, what can I do to fix me as much as possible? And as you're doing that, as you're challenging yourself, there's nothing wrong with also taking on the world, but it's, um, it just really makes no sense to even care about the world if you're not, um, taking your own life very seriously. Yeah. No, I agree with that. I'm talking about like a productive endeavor, something that tries to make. I, I it sounds like you're saying it's not, um, or you said earlier, but maybe you changed your mind. It's it's not necessarily the right focus to have that as the productive career of your life, to try to impact the culture through objectivism, which you know by by using the ideology or like to have that as a career, um, and. You know, I don't, I don't know that I agree with that, I, but I, I do think that there's realms that you can do this in. Like, I think you can make impacts in art, and you are doing that. And so I agree, you're doing that. It's, it's awesome. I'm doing it kind of by accident. I'm just doing what I'm, I enjoy doing, and it, it's, 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 you know, it's, it's influencing a certain number. Of, I mean, I get emails all the time saying, "Oh, I read object, I read Rand because of you." But also, people bullshit a lot, especially young people. They love to like write fan mail and say, "Like, uh, I was gonna kill myself, but then I read your, saw your video, and now I'm a fucking Fortune 500 CEO." So. Um, Wait, is that you know, true? No, not. I mean, I'm exaggerating, <laughs> of course. Like see, see, we found. I found the game, yeah. and that the game is fans exaggerating the positive oh, impact God. that I had on. So there's the game, and I we took it, it to we took it to an extreme. No, we gave me an opportunity <laughs> to explain Good. what I just did there. Um, it is reaching people. I think the history of philosophy rap is like my favorite thing that I've done. It's just so like it integrates it integrates these different aspects. Again, do you think do you think I sat one day and said, "Oh, how do I reach the culture?" It's like, "No, fuck that." I said, "This is this would be a cool thing to create. This would be what I would want to see. This is so like everything's right with this." What do you want to create next? Just the, the music or is there anything else you want to create? I think probably both what I'm doing is the music as well as the sort of commentary series and conversations like this one. Um, 
And over time, who knows what's next? I might, I might get into public speaking or something or whatever, whatever opportunity presents itself. How many commentary um, videos have you done like this? Like what? Like what we just did, like a, this kind of discussion. Uh, I've done some very long ones. Me and uh, Charles too have spoken for many hours. Uh, I've done other long, long interviews. Yeah, I've do, done uh, do you quite want a handful more of those. Yeah, I'm always down. I don't, I don't have a, you know, I don't. As long as long as it's interesting, as long as we're uh, as long as we're doing something challenging, I'm I'm down. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was just thinking, like maybe one thing is we can try to get a list of people to have conversations with. Mm-hmm. We can have they go on your show, and then we try to get them on mine later or something, and have different conversations or something like because part of the issue of this kind of show or, or this kind of thing is getting enough people to keep it going. Um, what do you mean getting enough people? Like getting to keep enough it going? interesting people on the show to talk to. Have you, yes. you must have met a lot of, you must know a lot more interesting people than me. Um, I don't find, I hate to, hate to sound bleak and negative, but I find very, very many people not interesting. Well, that's um, my point. I'm agreeing with you. I'm saying part of oh, the difficulty Oh, that's what you're saying. Yeah, is yeah. finding those people. So that's, yeah. So what's, know, I, what's, I think they're out there. I think like, you know, as a good conversationalist, you can, as long as they're somewhat intelligent, you can make an interesting conversation, but. Well, start by being the most interesting person you can, you know, pick up the ominous parallels, read it, see Jordan Peterson in the 19th century philosophers, and then look up from the book and say, I'm going to go fuck him. That's what you need to do. Don't worry about about fuck finding him. other in- interest, interesting people. What do you mean, fuck him? Wait, are you talking to me, Kirk? Or are you talking in the, to Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm saying, you know, what don't do you want me don't to do? who do you want me to fuck? <laughs> yeah, uh, Peterson. Don't don't apologize don't for him. Peterson. Don't. Yeah, <laughs> okay. that's that's exactly right. Um, uh, okay. So, you know, like challenge yourself. Be 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 hard hitting and I and did direct. Forty hours and most of it was challenging Peterson for sure. Yeah, but I still had to tell you. Um, here's what here's how he rejects reason. I mean, it seemed like we had some some unclarity I, I agree on that. With you, I think I wouldn't. Yeah. Even, I would argue that I probably went even a little deeper in my discussion with with his thing. Like I yeah. had some very deep disagreements with him, like intense. I actually, there's one, I think on chapter five or six, when he talks about order your own kingdom before you order the other, the one about serial killers. Mm-hmm. Um, I read for each one of his chapters, I read at least a book, sometimes two or three books on that mm-hmm. one. I went like really in depth the Columbine killer one. And I actually accused him of being intellectually dishonest, like purposefully. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know any other way to, to get at it. So, because there's a, have you read the book 12 rules for life? No. So there's a there's a paragraph where he talks about Carl Panzram, the serial killer from the early 1900s who went yeah. around and um he basically Peterson was making the argument that the re- reason Carl Panzram went on this thing was because the world was unjust to him and he suffered and which is true he was brutally uh he was betrayed in his childhood he was he went mm-hmm. through the you know foster system was brutally raped and beaten over and over and over again and he came out of the system completely um furious at humanity mm-hmm. and he wanted to just he didn't want to kill individuals he wanted to make humanity like the like peterson talks about this a lot like the essence of like mankind itself like the thing mankind not individuals but that idea, he wanted to make it suffer and hurt because he had hurt. And, and it, I think I think there's something interesting in what Peterson's saying psychologically. But 
what he did I really didn't like because I really studied this is he then talked about Eric and Dylan Eric Klebold and Dylan um, Tom not Dylan Thomas the poet Dylan whatever Columbine guys yeah, the two Columbine guys mm-hmm. Peterson in, in three in two paragraphs like he he starts the paragraph off he starts the the section off you know the suffering of the world. And he he talks about Carl Panzram. He talks about how he was suffering, and that's part of he was lashing out. And there was this desire. And then he he without a, a segue. And you can read this. Like I read it on the thing, and I was, I I tried to give him the benefit of the doubt, benefit of the doubt. And he without a segue, he went right into well, this is the same thing that Dylan and Eric went through. Mm-hmm. And they and then but I studied them. I read all of their journals. You can get a lot of it online. I literally read every word they wrote that you can get. Every video I watched. I read books on it and I read the main book called Columbine by the guy who was there at the beginning. Everything I can get about their life. And these kids did not fucking suffer at all. Not even a little bit. Like they, they had BMWs, they were attra- like girls liked them. Like they were the bullies, not the bullied. Like everything was the opposite of what Peterson was saying. And Peterson has said that he's read about the, he's read their journals. He even quoted their journals. So I was like, I, I, you know, I, this was one of the turning points for me as I saw he was, there's no other way to see that from, I, I mean, unless I'm missing something, he's being dis, dishonest intellectually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, because you cannot compare Carl Panzram who was actually raped and murdered and and Carl did not go on the kind of mass shooting spree that these kids did. So, my, the point I was I made in my podcast, among other points on that episode, was that he he went into this and he um, Peterson was trying to make this case for suffering that they were suffering. And I said, but the one thing he like, to go with what you were saying earlier, one conclusion past where he was at that he did not make was that there's a difference between actual suffering and perceived suffering. So it's true that they these kids thought they were suffering. So for instance, Dylan, there's this section in his uh, journal where he's like, he says, and, and, and uh, Peterson quotes this, I believe he quotes that, I, I might be wrong on that, but, but he says, I fucking hate mankind, I want to kill everybody, this is the most unjust thing ever. And then he talks about why he's so mad this day. And the reason is because he lost his knife and like, you know, some other little nonsense thing, which he later mm-hmm. found the knife. So it was like, that's not a real suffering is what I'm saying. Oh. So he, he had this perce- this thing. Go ahead. Well, well, I mean, it sound, they definitely were suffering. That doesn't mean they were, they were wanting in the material realm. In the same way as Carl Panzram is what I'm saying. So it's, what I'm saying is they're like, the question is, why did they perceive that they, these middle class, you know, um, good looking, intelligent kids perceive themselves as suffering? And, you know, what, what Peterson was arguing is that they suffered in the same way that Carl Panzram did, but they didn't. They were, again, they were not bullied. They were the bullies. Well, hold on. Side side note, didn't they? I, I remember reading in like Newsweek back in the day that like they were getting slammed into lockers and all that high school movie shit. No. no, no. All right. Anyway, I, mean, I, I from it was probably read, sensationalized. It's bullshit. That yeah, is, Fuck. that's the myth. So it's mm-hmm. just like the myth of of Islamic yeah. terrorists is that they're all poor. They're actually right. all middle class. The myth mm-hmm. of a lot of these kids is that they're. I mean, some of them yeah. I'm sure are bullied, but Eric and Dylan were not really bullied. Yes. I mean, there was a few incidents like everybody in like sixth and seventh grade, 
but yeah. they were juniors, seniors, and mm-hmm. they no, they were juniors going into senior year. It was the last day of junior junior year, and they they did like for years they did not. Now the one bad thing that happened was, um, but again, it wasn't the like anything like Carl Panzeram was that they were caught vandalizing a van, and so they went to. Um, like a punishment thing where they got they had to be punished in some way but it wasn't even that bad the psychologist loved eric and thought he was brilliant and amazing and they got out early for good behavior i mean things were going their way i mean it wasn't so yeah so i i i see how that's a different type of suffering than someone getting raped in the foster home i i see that however um because of the role, uh, the the toll that a nihilistic uh, culture has on a young adolescent, it stands to reason that the Columbine shooters were suffering internally, um, in terms of not not knowing which values to embrace to pursue, not knowing really what's true ultimately, not knowing what's moral and what's immoral, or like having a wrong conception of those categories. They were clearly suffering, so I think it's fair to assume that um, that a a well-to-do upper-middle-class teenager who plots out uh, a shooting, goes into a school, and tries to blow the whole school up is angry and is in emotional pain as the result of a very um, a very uh, damaged psychological state, which. I would I would say has a lot to do with nihilism in the culture and nihilism in their own sort of internal constitution. Well, but that was the argument I'm making, though, is I, I agree with that part that mm-hmm. the way I perce- or conceived it was that there's a difference between perceived suffering. And the question is, why do they perceive themselves as suffering by suffering? I mean, physical is what I'm focusing on. Who, who, who said they were physically suffering? Well, he said they were suffering. What well, and look, anything that takes place in on planet Earth is happening physically. So your emotional pain is something physical is is taking place. You are a physical being. Um, you are not. Your your suffering is not an abstraction floating somewhere. It's it's ha- you know you're suffering. So they were suffering. They were in pain. I can I, I, I agree can, that they felt yeah. that they were in pain. Yes, they had no reason to be. But Peterson wasn't saying they were in physical pain when they took those guns. I mean, isn't that a bit of a materialistic kind of fixation to say because they had cars and and chicks, they weren't suffering? Well, first off, yes, that would be. The argument I was making was that there is a – like a – he went straight from here's Carl Panzram being raped and brutally murdered or brutally beaten and betrayed Mm -hmm. by the people who are supposed to – that was the argument he was making. He yeah. was saying that they were he, that Carl was beaten, betrayed, um, raped over and over and over again, and then he came out this murderous beast. Did then, he mention? Yeah. Did he mention any evidence of like how they were suffering? No, that's or, what I'm saying. He went straight. So he into, just, it was it yeah. was almost like he w- Carl was the example. Like if you read these three first three paragraphs, Carl was yeah. the example. They were then the conclusion because then he quotes them, not Carl, mm-hmm. about why they hated the world. So he was using Carl as his. Bit, you know, context for this whole thing. So I, I completely agree that they were, you know, if you want to call it that they were actually suffering, sure. I mean, I, I will have to think a little bit about that. I, I agree that if they're internally suffering, but the issue that I was having was that as I was agreeing, with, I, I would put it this way. I'm agreeing with what you're saying about there's 
you want to call it nihilism, but it was the ideas they held. That's what was causing the internal grief. Because if you read their journals, they were definitely in pain. Mm -hmm. They definitely felt this horrible anxiety or, or um, well, anxiety, but also a mm -hmm. hatred. And they yeah. felt there was bad injustices toward the, uh, toward them. Mm -hmm. um, and and th that evolved into something. And, you know, they even and, built worlds. Like Dylan Klebold was a poet and he definitely mm -hmm. built worlds. You know, they loved um, Nine Inch Nails and the, the song Closer. And this was famously ma this was made famous at the time when you know congressmen were like attacking the oh, songs. I thought it was Marilyn Manson Marilyn that Manson they were. Manson as well. Mm -hmm. um, but but there is a kind of a, an, an emotional pain in those songs. By the way, I think that um, that that yeah. brings well, out look, a pain in yourself. I think um, you know there's a there's a bad religion album called Suffer, and it's the the lyrics of the title track is the masses of humanity have always had to suffer. And on the on the cover of the album, there's a suburban kid like standing in the in, in this affluent street like and the kid is lit on fire. He's like on fire suffering. Um, the mo I mean, the the type of suffering that I can relate to and probably you in your in your life is not going to be um, getting brutally raped. And uh, well, rape definitely happens, but it's not going to be wanting for, you know, not living in poverty, per se. We we. The most common type of suffering that that I'm familiar with and that I've had to deal with in my life was never um, in the material realm to, to to a terrible degree. It was mostly being pr well provided for, but just not knowing what to do with myself. And this goes back through all of man's history. You know, all those all those Asian mystics trying to find nirvana. Speaking of depressing music, but all those all those uh, yeah, Oriental true. mystics. What, what were they just hungry? Did they not have any food? Were they just, you know, wanting for material good or were they getting raped at the time that they were that they were trying to deal with all that suffering? No, they they were presumably they had shelter over their head. And now they were just figuring out, like, what do I do with myself? Should I just meditate here? Should I like what should I be doing with myself? And what they were lacking was philosophy. They were lacking reason and a clear understanding a gra clear grasp of reality. That's like the grasping reality is such a essential part of of being a man of of living on Earth. Um, so yeah, the type of suffering that the the Columbine boys were dealing with was what a lot of um, people deal with. The type of suffering where you're you're provided for and you're you're you ha you kind of have what you need. But or even what you want, but you don't really know what to want. You don't really know what to do with yourself because you're lacking direction. You're 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 lacking ideas. So I'm not saying you're that Peterson. Well, they didn't lack ideas, though. Is part of the problem. They like call the correct, line, correct, correct ideas, rational well, yeah, ideas. Exactly. But one of the things mm -hmm. that was pointed out in the book Columbine was how. Um, religious the town was it was actually one of the more religious towns in the areas of small suburban town and one of the things he points out in the book the 10-year anniversary of the book is how these are always happening in these small more smaller religious mm -hmm. towns where there's like a um and because if you read dylan um especially his journals he is building a world that is based on the christian mythology of mm -hmm. heaven and hell and he and Eric are the the only saviors, and everyone else is, you know, needs to be saved and demolished, and they're all horrible. So he's building it within this mythology and the, this framework that you know Peterson advocates, and that 
mm-hmm. you know, religious people advocate. And it's not a coincidence that these kids were dragged to church all the time. Now, I'm not blaming church directly. Um, I don't think it is direct. I think that, I think there's a variety of factors, including Eric uh, was definitely a psychopath, mm-hmm. you know, like an actual psychopath. Um, yeah. But he had, he had, he was diagnosed afterwards with psychopathy. I, yeah. So anyway. I, I don't know enough about psychopathy and psychopathy and again, psychology being too young of a science for me to fully endorse it in its current state. But um, look, you don't have to convince me that Christians often have had blood on their hands and that, and that radical Christians or of radicals of any religion can lose gr- grasp of reality and do horrible things to the people around them. But I suspect that in the case of the Columbine boys, it was Nine Inch Nails and Marilyn Manson who but really what those what those artists what those things represent about the culture the the nihilism the the um i guess nihilism really says it all not not blaming those artists at all but that it is the probably the influence of nihilism oh, that yeah. led them in that direction just like if you go to a prison you know all these guys have jesus christ tattoos on them they 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 love jesus but um i think probably what made them abandon reason was not that they read too much john locke and his, you know, conception, you know, his conception of 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 natural rights deriving from God. It's more the influence of modern philosophy and disintegration that led them to a life of short sightedness and crime. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I can't remember the movie. I watched the movie. I watched listened to a lot of the stuff they listened to. But there is a movie that they loved. Ah, I can't remember what it's called. And if you watch it, I'll try and find it and put it in the notes or something. Or if you watch it, it's the most disintegrated, um, you know, movie where this, you know, it's, it's basically plot elements happen at the, at random times. One character becomes another character. It's really bizarre. It was mm-hmm. somewhat popular at the time and they loved it, you know, in the late nineties. Um, it was like the, the stranded road or I fucking I can't remember. It's what the director who's very famous actually. Mm-hmm. Now keep, you know, keep um, in mind, like, uh, well, sorry, did I interrupt you? Well, no, I was just gonna say like, so I agree with you. Like there's a, there's a mm-hmm. missing, like they were taught this, you know, I, you, you call it nihilism all the time. And yeah, that's part of it. I would say it's also how their brains were, you know, misfiring or misintegrating is another way to look at it. But, their, their mind rather, as opposed to their brain, which sounds like it was a physical malfunction. Yeah. I think so. I think it was a philosophical error. Um, yeah, yeah. Now and you know, I, I think after Sandy Hook, Peacock uh, had a special podcast episode dedicated to just that, and I think he said something along the lines of a hundred, a hundred fifty years ago, we had crazy people as well, but the difference yeah. is they were they were surrounded by by people around them saying there is reality, there is a right and wrong. Don't go out and shoot people. You know, do calm, calm down and go to work like they were surrounded by rational influences. Whereas today in modern times, what does a crazy person have around him? People telling him intellectuals telling him, hey, it's what reality is, whatever you perceive it to be, quote unquote, perceive Uh, reality is whatever you think it is or feel it is. Reality is um, basically subjectivism is what I'm getting at. Mm -hmm. Their subjectivism or. or you know what what's what's right for you isn't right for him and what you know whatever just just follow your emotions so there's um there's kind of the 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 big factor you know you were talking about how they they were raised like religious or they lived in a religious community and 
kind of the problem is when when people walk away from religion, kind of what's waiting for them. And that's why I was talking earlier about the atheist community and how they all they quickly turn into skeptics, turn into nihilists, and all many of them t- kind of found their way back to religion, or many of them became social justice warriors, which is like another religion. Um, the um, you know what, what? So what was happening? The '90s are such a gross decade, by the way. So the these these guys. Um, you know, they did. They were to the degree they're probably rebelling against their religious upbringing. What do they see out in the culture? They see like they see, you know, sadness and suicide and drug addiction as like the as like the alternative. Um, there was this HBO kind of weird documentary about Kurt Cobain a couple years ago, and it was I just like I stopped watching it. I used to love Kurt Cobain when I was like 14. I read books about his life. I like I was like I wanted to know everything about him. Now it's just like. He's just such a, a poster, like poster child of his time. This like the child of hippies. Like he's like the first generation of people raised by hippies. Um, he's just doing drugs from the time he was like 12, 13 years old and, and writing po- poetry about like nonsense, like focusing on the grossest possible things he could focus on. Um, I think he wrote in his journal that like the first time he had sex was with this like, somewhat retarded girl um and like and like and that i read in one of his biographies that like um she had even it may have been somewhat non-consensual or something like she had complained about it but um they they gave her a yearbook and said who you know point to the guy and he had not gotten his picture taken (laughs) anyway i shouldn't i shouldn't speculate about uh, a man who is no longer alive to to defend himself but um, there, there's just this so, so, so much like nihilistic, like, um, like disintegrated attitude that stems mm-hmm. from the, that whole grunge scene and all the, all the music and all the, uh, kind of grimy art that comes out of these like hipster communities. These people are like, these people are, they are like, I mean, they really are living in, uh, the Weimar Republic. Um, they are the people. They are the avant-garde, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, they are the ones paving the way for totalitarianism, for uh, for death and destruction. And when you see one of them snap and just start killing indiscriminately, I mean, what, what you know, you know, Adolf Hitler living in the 1990s in the U.S. might have also been a school shooter. You know, um, the, the 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 difference is the kind of political legitimacy that these people are given. Well, they admired the Nazis, especially Dylan or Eric mm-hmm. Harris. Yeah. Um, by the way, the movie is called The Lost Highway. <clears throat> 1997 movie, The okay. Lost Highway, with Bill Pullman, actually. Um, wow. Yeah. So I don't know. I don't know who that is, but oh, okay. sounds um, actually sounds like I might have seen President him. and Independence Day. Oh, Perlman. Perlman. Pullman. Lou- Oh, um, not the guy who looks like a caveman. He's the no, yeah, no, no the president in Independence Day. Okay, I don't remember. Looks, I remember him looking like Kennedy. Um, but anyway, so I mean, you're right that like there's nothing else out there, and mm-hmm. they latched on to like Nazi ideology. And one of the things that Peterson definitely quoted of Eric Harris was that this quote that's become famous of Eric Harris saying that you know the Nazis had it right, but they didn't go far enough. Kill right. mankind, you know, mm-hmm. not just the Jews. Kill everybody. Mankind does not deserve to live. Right. And and what Peterson was arguing that I was, you know, having an issue with, because I agree with you that ideas were the real problem. 
And Peterson was not mentioning that. He was saying suffering is the problem. And I was saying suffering may be a catalyst, but it's not. Mm -hmm. But because, because like I said, I think they perceived themselves as suffering when they weren't really genuinely suffering. I do think they're like, like, and what caused them to perceive that is important. And that perception could be real, Mm -hmm. but you know, like the, the teenage angst can be real. For sure. And it is real, I should say. Not could be. It is real. It feels horrible to be isolated and to not know why. They were both very intelligent. Um, mm-hmm. So that makes them a little bit lonely a lot of times because you can't connect with people. But yeah. all I was arguing against in the podcast was how um, basically, I mean, similar to what you're saying right now in terms of what was going on were, you know, the influences in their life in music, in movies you know, in the, even the books they read, um, the, the history channel when they loved the fell in love with Nazis and things like that. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, that was, that all added up to something that made them build their own world where they saw themselves as this ultimate suffering creature that everything was unjust, everything that happened to them. So again, losing your knife is not something. So here's where I, you know, think it's not actual suffering. The big mm-hmm. thing that Dylan Klebold was so upset about one day when he went berserk on his journal mm-hmm. was he lost his knife and some other little thing like that, right? Mm-hmm. Or it was stolen, he said. And um, what I'm saying is he may have internally felt intense actual suffering where he was just, ah, you know, so angry and so mad and so, so actual like pain and that the world is against me in the same way that like, a, a um, Nazi concentration camp person might feel that even if before they're physically abused, right? Like when they're first marched in the Warsaw, they, that Dylan may feel that genuinely that internally that strong, just like the Nazi Warsaw person, right? Or the, the Jewish Warsaw guy. The difference is it's not real suffering to lose a knife. The question is why did he perceive that small minor little issue on such apocal, you know, basis. Now, maybe there was some psychological issues that we didn't identify, but I think there's other indications that it's the ideas. That's the problem is that they were influenced by bad music. Um, and again, I, I, the, I actually like nine inch nails sometimes, right? Like, it's, well, I, I like them and Marilyn Manson a lot, but my point with that is it's that part of the culture that was, um, influenced well, they had for the most part. And they had nothing yeah, and, admi- and, admirable to look up to. Right. No no uh, understanding of, of, of real reason. Certainly nothing like Rand's objectivist ethics. I mean, you, these are things that life requires that she's that she's that she's offering. It's it's it really is um, like she discovered fire to a degree. And it's and people don't want to hear about it. Well, if they um, read Anthem, I bet they would have been better off. Who knows? And obviously Who people knows, mis- but- people misread these things and it wouldn't surprise me if one day somebody shoots up a school and says that they're John Galt. Like these things happen. People misunderstand. They, 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 they misread. They get the wrong essentials from these things. They, so it takes, I mean, it takes an open mind and then it takes a lot of work to integrate. Ultimately, it, it call, you need to have like this kind of inner spark, this inner like drive to, to, to find happiness. Happiness needs to be what it, what it is that you're after. And that, I think that was something I never lost sight of, which is why in my nihilistic teen years, 
I ultimately wanted to keep looking for answers and to keep reading and discovering as opposed to taking finding a gun and, and hurting a bunch of you know innocent people um, among other reasons well, I mo- probably like, most mm-hmm. people are Dylan and Eric I went through the same thing like mm-hmm. that they went through I hated school I I was lonely I didn't know mm-hmm. very many people um, I had a few friends but then I moved and it was, it was so I you know I understand exactly the anxiety that they felt in terms of you know, there, there's just nowhere for you like that. I think that's more typical. Um, but, you know, I was making an argument against Peterson's view of suffering in the way he portrayed it. I think it was intellectually dishonest mm-hmm. um, or it could be just a byproduct of him not being as clear as he could be. Because mm-hmm. if you want to be clear, you need to, like, dig into why they did that why or why they felt that that a knife was the end of the world. Whereas Carl Panzram had real reasons to hate the world, and that that's that's the other thing is like I think, you know, for instance, Ayn Rand um, is famous for having, you know, read about and had interest in serial killers. Mm-hmm. But I think one of the interesting things from a writer, like a, if you're a fiction writer, and there is like there's a show called Mindhunter on Netflix that I love. I, I like reading about serial killers for whatever reason. There is something fascinating about the what they're after there's a consistency in them that's that's scary to read about it's terrifying mm-hmm. because it's like a, a switch turned off in the turned on in the wrong direction and they're you know they they see humans as you know meat rather than humans but mm-hmm. anyway my point is that i just had issues with him <laughs> went on like a 20 minute tangent mm-hmm. or whatever on or longer on, on my view of the intellectual dishonesty because you were you were talking to me about like um I need to go do this and I've I've done a lot of this stuff about Peterson and I um and I'm trying to do more and that's why I'm talking to you and I want to learn There you go. Learn all right. You and do there more. you go. Learn from me. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to oh. do. I'm trying to figure out how to do more of it. And I want to do more, you know, with you. My background is a lot of sales and production and yeah, like that. So, I, I think that's great. I mean, I don't mean to just like pick on you, but you I mean, but, me. but when we're talking about like how to reach the culture, my whole thing is like, well, like reach your own inner culture, reach your own immediate surrounding, like really work. on. I know I, I like I'm not one of these like Indians, you know, the Indians, they're like, um, <laughs> you know, in, in, in India, they were just like, you need to trade within your own um, oh, okay, okay. community. That was Gandhi's gift to India. 50 years of starvation. Um, because you know you wouldn't yeah. want to be have selfish capitalism or anything like that. Too too earthly, too rational. That's that's the Brit- British way. Let them let them do that over there. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yeah, that was my whole point. Just like, but like, be the guy. That's there's my motto. Be the guy, quote unquote. Um. It is interesting how like fascinated Americans are with with Nazi Germany. Um, the the History Channel is constantly playing its stuff, and that's because it, it rates high, of course. Um, we, I mean, obviously, I know there's like a lot of like. Why do you think lot, that is, though? I agree that. I, I mean, I, I think a, a cynic, a cynic would say, well, because the Jews work in Hollywood and they create these movies, but I think. Um, I think sort of psychologically Americans are going down the same path, not to say we're going to wear those particular uniforms and target that same, the, the particular groups that Hitler did. But there's there's a there's a way in which we have the same philosophical um, trends that the Germans did 
and in a way that we don't sh- ha- have in common with the Russians. So well, there I is some, that, yeah. and I think so. I think like, like the the Nazis were much more Western, just like us. Like they mm-hmm. look like us in a lot of ways. Their structures are like ours. We got mm-hmm. our school system from theirs. You know, uh, as Peacock pointed out, they're the land of poets and philosophers in the 19th century. So a lot of so they were very wet. Like they were the epitome of the culture of Western civilization in the 19th and 20th century, really. Um, yeah. In a way that Russia is not. Russia was those Easterners. They were different. They were emotional to a higher degree, you know. So, so I agree that that. But go, but go ahead. And so, so, so the 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 direction that Germany ultimately went was a consequence of their philosoph- philosophical influences, as I think Peikoff documents in the ominous parallels. And and Peikoff also makes the point that America is disturbingly on a similar trajectory. Yeah. And I think we. That maybe that's part of our fascination with uh, with Germany, with Nazi Germany. And um, in a weird way, it's like we can't quite put our finger on what's wrong with it. Like we know that racism is bad. Right. That's that's all we can really say. In fact, the only moral absolute in, in American culture in modern times is that racism is bad and the opposite of racism is good. But. As far as the the way that the Germans rejected reason, the fact that they rejected individualism, Americans basically agree with that stuff. The fact that, you know, working for something bigger than yourself is something that the Germans were about. Obviously, that's still the moral ideal here today. People brag all the time about serving a cause higher than their own selfish needs. So um, in a weird way, I think part of why Americans are so fascinated with Nazi Germany is – is just what I said, um, both being kind of being on a similar philosophical trajectory and not quite knowing how to name kind of what's wrong, if anything. Uh, so, again, this is why we're, we're lacking in ideas. Probably the one difference between us and Germany is that we are we are once upon a time the nation of the Enlightenment. We are once upon a time the land of the individual and that presence is still there. Uh, the, the ghosts of the founding fathers still walk among us in a very subtle way and sometimes not subtle way. There is this kind of entrepreneurial spirit. Like when I visited England, even though they obviously they came, the the founders came from England too. So England should technically also be, um, you know, a, an individualistic place, but it must be a mixture of their other philosophical influences or the fact that they became socialists when they did. I was so depressed around these people. The British are so lame compared to us. Americans are so much cooler. I mean, the, 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 an American bum slash American on welfare is has more of a kind of individualistic drive um, <laughs> than the average British person. I mean, yeah. why that is, I don't know, because um, I don't know what took place in England after the American Revolution. Like they obviously they, they went back to their neck of the woods. Um or wait, did they go to the Canada? Did, is that where the British have been too? Like they've been is Canada basically just England this whole time with a different more, name? I thought it had more French influence. Yeah, that's right. So look at me. I'm like I'm like this. <laughs> I just like make up history. Like this is like it's like um, we're like wa- you're like watching me write a song right now where I'm just like pulling like different okay. ideas and memes and just like create like uh, recreating history. But go ahead. I love that. No, it's all. Well, I mean, the Brits were in the Americas still. They weren't gone from America. So, like, because America's big, you know, they could go, they can go south. And, but I, I, um, 
Where the hell did they go? I, I Hold don't on. Know exact, like, I think they spent more, like, they went back to Britain, but mm-hmm. they definitely spread. I mean, you get an empire, you know, shortly yeah. after that. Um, mm-hmm. And there's still an empire into the 1950s. So yeah. It's not like, you know, they, they probably went, I don't know the exact trajectory, you know, in, into. Um, yeah. So I know, I know politically, and I hate to focus on politics, but ultimately, of course, politics is a reflection of the ideas of a culture. So I know that politically, the British never had that, uh, that chutzpah that the founding fathers had, right? This, yeah. you, you know, individual, you know, like life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness. And we're going to, we're going to kill to defend, you know, liberty. Well, the, uh, obviously, the, the British, they, they have a, a lot of uh, – there's a lot right with, with them in their history. But ultimately, they went back to their boring little uh, system. They, 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 they tipped their fedora at the queen, and they, um, they had their confusing the the, their confusing parliament. Why do you hate fedoras and beards? <laughs> oh, so the, I mean, the, again, these are me- these are memes that I did not make up. Oh, this, okay, okay. this ne- neck beards and yeah. uh, fedoras. I don't know. I, I just hear that I thought, on your songs a couple of times. I was like, hey. Yeah, hey, I, hey. I mean, I did. The the the, the stereotype <laughs> is that offense. like, yeah, the stereotype is that like skeptics and like these kind of modern uh, gamers and like super um, socially maladjusted. Um, kind of drug addict slash um virgin slash just like super unintegrated men young men are like they have beards and fedoras and they're just very confused as to I what had they're a fedora doing and a beard in college so <laughs> i mean that explains a lot i guess so yeah i don't know yeah, I don't. Um, okay yeah so that i mean that's interesting britain went in that direction um yeah. I, I mean, one thing I would say is I think they're a little bit, they have a tradition that America doesn't have, right? Like they, they have thousand years of tradition. And that's one of the reasons why the, like George Washington said, don't get entangled mm-hmm. because there's, there's long traditions. Like even just the Royal families are all related and there's, you know, there's so much going on and America was the first country um, that was founded on an ideal. Right. It was there's never been a country that started mm-hmm. with an ideal. Right. Like America, when it was founded, it fought and then it became this ideal. And the people who left, the Puritans who left, they were fleeing so that they could do what they wanted to do. So there is an element, I think, of independence. And there's a yeah. story and there's a book about Paul Revere that I really love. I think it's by Paul Hackett, something. Mm-hmm. It's Paul Revere's ride. It's a great, great biography like paul revere was much more um interesting to me than the other founding fathers because he was more the active person more the activist more the um he was a thinker he was smart but he was not a thomas jefferson thinker and um you know or or a john adams speaker anything like that he was the salesman who brought everybody together actually and it's a very interesting story about him but there's one moment in the um battle of um Oh man, what's the first battle? Uh, the, where the shot heard around the world. Oh shit, I'm just drawing a blank. Uh, the town. What the hell is the name of that town? Ugh. Anyway, well, so there's that first battle where the shot was heard around the world. Oh, did I lose you? No. Oh, okay. You were mm-hmm. like so frozen. I thought you might be frozen. Oh. <laughs> um, but he, um, yeah, so there's a moment where the, the soldiers, the Minutemen that were going out there, the, the Americans, they're going and 
nobody wants to fight the British because the British are that like they are British at this point. You know, like one of the things is Paul Revere did not come say the British are coming. He said the Redcoats are coming because mm. the villagers, the colonizers were British. They did not see themselves as separate yet. So mm. anyway, the point is that a lot of these, um, the colonels or the people in this disor like slightly beginnings of an army, the, the Minutemen, they were defending. There was one incident or a couple incidents, one in particular that was focused on in this book where the there was like a city, like a part of the village was burning and the, the colonel didn't want to go fight yet. Like it was just all an act for him to some degree. And the other Americans there, and I think this is very epitomizing of what it means to be an American. They're all independent farmers. So they're all like entrepreneurial. It's all like, this is my shit, motherfucker. And they said, hey, and one of them was like, if you don't go there, we're going to kill you and go there anyway. So just go fight. You're our leader. But we're going to like, we're going there. And if you're not going to go do it, you're going to have to deal with us. And then we're going to go there. Right. Yeah. And so it was kind of like this. This is our land. And they didn't they don't like Americans don't take leadership or, you know, authority in the same way that uh, like Britain and, and other places do. Like it took a while for Britain to get rid of their king. Mm -hmm. So where we were like, get out of here, king. Fuck off. Mm -hmm. Like that's. Yeah. That's, you know, the tea tax was not even a big tax. We just didn't like the authority of it. It wasn't like yeah, a judgmental yeah. tax. And we were not belligerent like the French in overthrowing the, the king, right? Like we were um, overthrowing the, were the crown. Nuts, but <laughs> yeah, but I mean, <laughs> they were belligerent. Off. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, they replaced the king with or the queen or whoever with another dictator, right? Like, was it Napoleon? Like, didn't he Napoleon just crown himself? to fix the problems. In... Mm. So there's the 1789 re uh, revolution, and it was... Um, I'm forgetting all these names. Um, the, there's a famous person, like a famous leader in France from 1789 to like 95 or something like that. And he was a citizen, not a royal. And they were at war with royals. You know, and there was the 93, um, the famous, you know, 1993, or 1993, 1793, where this is where the, the height of the executions and beheadings happened. And Napoleon basically was a... Um, um, a, a, a munition, what was it called? A cannon guy. Can't remember the name of the term. And and he eventually rose up and took power by using some of the military and, and fixing some of the problems at home. Uh. Um, but anyway, so yeah, Rus no, not Rousseau. Damn it, I have to look it up. But anyway, so yeah, like they they went they they because the the problem in Europe is the what, what I'm saying. I think that one of the big problems was that they had this tradition. So unlike America, where there was a little bit more of a fresh start, they had structures and kings that have been there for a thousand years, Char going back to Charlemagne and all the Roman, and like getting rid of all the power structures and all you know the the church, that was really hard. The French did it much quicker than the Britons, so but they did it violently, like like they cut everybody's head off. Mm -hmm. right? And it. it, it I mean, it, would it be true to say the the British had more of a a goal in mind as far as like individualism compared to the the recklessness of the French? I don't. I, that's a good question. I don't know. I mean, it's it's. I'm not exactly sure when the prime minister became 
you know, more in play in, in, in Britain and the king became less of, he became just a figurehead. I mean, to me, it's still bizarre that they still have the fucking family. Like, that's it is bizarre. Thing. Yeah. That's and I've, 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 I've never liked it. The fact it's tax funded, of course, is, is, is ridiculous. I remember, uh, I mean, when the, when Prince William was getting married to his, his wife, um, I remember talking about that and someone told me online, oh no, it, 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 you know, the, the money raised from tourism makes it worth it. Like what? Okay. So these guys over here need to pay taxes to, to, to support this family. And then, but then, but then these Armenians over here are, are selling bootleg merchandise outside the castle. And that makes up for the fact that these guys over here were forced to pay their, their, it's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy, but the idea is, and this, this just speaks to the, um, the, uh, the, um, the British attitude, the the lack of confidence, the insecurity, and the lameness is that the idea is you know having a a royal family in place stops it, it keeps the country from falling into the hands of politicians. You know, is that right? Is that what they say? I think that's the the, the oh, rationale. I'm sure. You know, we wouldn't want politicians to you know take over because we can't we can't trust those politicians, right? They're not. They're not. They don't come from our culture. No, those politicians. They all moved here from, uh, you know, from from uh, Mexico. That's that's who. That's who's in par. That's who's in parliament. You know. Dude, I could see that. That's a good move. Yeah. Yeah. All right, man. Well, that was a good conversation. I don't know if yeah. You any, um, I mean, I'm sure we could talk forever. I'm sure there's more we can discuss, but I, yeah, my fumes are a bit low yeah, at this point. A, so yeah, it's good talk, and it's let's talk man. again. All right, let's do it. Appreciate it. All right, all right. Okay, I'll catch you later. See ya.